Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where sound effect occurs at the beginning of every show. Like that one. Neat. Uh, isn't it neat? Uh, we're, we are not going to do the uh, the Steamboat Willie thing at the head of, head of every episode. We no. did that. We did that kind of recently. We did. We did that last. We did that last time. Mm. Uh, and uh, I was actually thinking about making it a regular thing, just to like just to throw it in Disney's face. Yeah. Like they they apparently someone put Steamboat Willie up. Oh, by the way, he's Whitney Seibold. He writes for well, Slash we're, Film. We're, we're I'm willing to, to be on yeah. I write for uh, the rep. Um, <laughs> uh, Steamboat Willie went into public domain uh, as of January 1st, and Disney was still flagging Steamboat Willie on YouTube. Uh-huh. And they had to, like, manually withdraw that. That's pretty funny. <laughs> they were like, oh, oh, right, actually, we don't have a link yeah. to stand on here. Yeah, so they're... They're, they're getting used to not being litigious. It's going to take some time. So <laughs> that's, all they, that's all they know how to do. And I just, uh, yeah, I don't care enough to, to, to poke that bear every single day. So uh, every once in a while, I might, I might whip out Steamboat Willie. But there we'll we go. see how it goes. Um, uh, but yeah, that, that's William. I'm Whitney. Uh, hi. And this is uh, our very special annual practice of doing the thing we like to do the best. It's the best part of a critic's job, really, is to take stock of the year. <clears throat> yep. Look back over all the movies we saw mm-hmm. and come up with the best ones. Yeah, these are the movies that uh, um, you know we see, we see a lot of movies. We mm. we see uh, new movies and old movies alike. We see hundreds of movies every year. Yeah. <clears throat> um. And you know what? There's a lot of good ones that when I look back over the, all the films I watched this year, and these were good movies. Um, I look back and I'm like, what was that? Did I, did I see that? And it's like they were well crafted, but they didn't make an impression. And well, then there are bad ones that like really stung and still left scars, but we're not here to talk about that today. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to focus on this year for my picks, and we're each going to do a top 10. Uh, we're, they're not ranked, although we will pick our number one favorite. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to focus on just, just to narrow it down because there are a lot of amazing movies this year. Uh, it's pretty good, mo- pretty good year for movies. Yeah. Uh, um, it's one of those years where a lot of wonderful movies came out right at the end of the year. Yeah. And a glut. So, yeah. Some of those films are getting good reviews. People I know and respect have been saying very positive things about them. Mm-hmm. And they're being completely shut out of award season. They're not on like <laughs> top 10 lists. Like all these great films are being like swallowed up just because there are so many yeah. that came out, especially right at the end of the year, but just yeah. throughout the year. Honestly, the really good stuff at the beginning of the year too. So what I decided to do in order to sort of like this, what am I going to focus on? Uh-huh. How am I going to narrow this down? I, I remember I was writing a top 10 list for, I think it was the rap actually it was, I think I mentioned this recently. It was like the best films of the decade list, like the best biopics or something I was writing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is really hard. Can I get more than 10 slots and my editor said no 
That's the job. Your job is to you got, 10. Yeah. You got to keep it concise. Sometimes that's the job. And we'll talk about our runners up and stuff. Mm-hmm. So for my 10, these are the movies that they're not the only great movies I saw this year. And if I looked at it another way, my top 10 might look very different. These I, are the films that made the biggest impression. Interesting. These okay. are the ones that when I was watching them, I felt I'm watching something very special right now. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, they're mostly films I've seen at least a month ago. Yeah. Or more. Uh, and I find myself, without thinking about awards season, <laughs> still mentally returning to them. Yeah. Like, um, <clears throat> I feel like every year, there's a, there's a few, not a lot, hopefully, but a few movies that we talk about endlessly from, like, December until Oscars, mm-hmm. because they're considered contenders. And then three months after the Oscars, we will not be talking about them again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's not even disrespect. It's like, they're not that they're badly made movies, but I just know there is no fucking way I will be talking about Maestro. Oh, I was going to bring out months. Maestro. Like, it's not, a, not badly yeah, I, made. I, I, I just um, don't feel anything for I, it. I haven't seen... There is actually... Uh, rather unfortunately, there were so many films this year that there's a lot I missed that yeah. I suspect might have made it their way onto my uh, my top ten list. Uh, there was one I missed called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. I love that Which I did movie. not see, and it looked my speed. It uh, there didn't was, make my list, but it did make Ryan Runners up, and I was it, it pained me to admit it. There was like a, a really odd Stuart Gordon homage called uh, Suitable Flesh yeah. that looked up my alley, which I missed. Yeah, uh, I didn't see Alexander Payne's new film, The Holdovers. Mm. Uh, I did. It, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, I, right. I, it, it's likable. I, I didn't. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see it. the new Kelly Reichardt film showing up. I didn't see that uh, either. Yeah, there's there's a, a lot, a lot. I wished I had seen. Yeah. That said, I saw about uh, like over 150 films. Yeah, uh, I, I was up there. I saw, uh, I saw about so, that so, so I wasn't too. slouching. I wasn't you know yeah. skipping out on my homework. Well, or the anything, other thing is but... that we don't get to only watch the movies that are considered awards contenders. Yeah, we see like, them all. We, we, we try to see literally uh, everything. And some are... of those movies will, you know, surprise us and end up on our lists. And Because I feel like there's this whole thing about, like, well, you know, I'm a serious critic. I will watch all of the serious movies. And I'm like, so you're not watching the genre films? You're not, like, looking at the corners mm-hmm. to see what's amazing that isn't, like, preordained to be, a, like, a, yeah. a awards? I, I, I don't understand that mindset. There's a few things I missed as well. I, I, I still didn't get a chance to see The Iron Claw in time. Okay. Um, I saw The Iron Claw. Yeah, I didn't see The Iron Claw. I didn't see Priscilla. I saw Priscilla. Um, let's see here. I, I missed most of the documentaries this year. I just oh, okay. didn't do great. I didn't get to see All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt. I heard that was amazing. Oh, that, that's another one I missed. I heard uh, Totem was amazing. Uh, I missed that as well. Um, and a few other things here and there. But mm-hmm. uh, those are the things that come most obviously Man. to mind. And I, I know that it's our job to sort of winnow this down to 10 just because that's tradition. Uh, it's an arbitrary there, There's a couple films that I could have easily swapped out on this mm-hmm. top 10 list and had not felt bad about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number one isn't number one with a bullet. Uh, it, yeah, there's a I'm... bunch that I could kind of put in the number one slot. Me there's too, a lot yeah. of really excellent films this year. So this is just... a. And the way we do top 10 lists, dear listeners, are uh, a little different from the way they do at other places where they rank six and seven. And we Uh, argue over the rankings. No, we don't do that. we, what we have is like a list of nine and then we have number one, which is our best. Yeah. Uh, I just want to announce right away that this is even less structured than that because <laughs> all of these are just great movies yeah. and, and like, I'm not really sure. It's basically like, a tie. Yeah. We mm-hmm. want every single movie that we're about to talk about, unless we go on a weird tangent about something we didn't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every single movie that we single out 
in this episode is a movie that we really love or deeply admire or just had a really good time uh, with and we would recommend you see them. Yeah. Now, they're not every single one of them is going to be for every audience and we'll describe it and you can decide for yourself, but they're all movies that we highly recommend. Yeah. Uh, and our number one is just if we had to pick. And so we, I, we I kind of do, do, it's kind of tradition, have a, but it's not important. These I do have a number movies. one. Um, yeah. There was a huge phenomenon over the summer. Uh, mm. This was the first year, I th- there's numbers on this, uh, like the first year in a long time where one of the first, like the top three movies that came out wasn't a sequel to a previous movie in like yeah. over a decade. Yeah. Uh, the, the highest grossing films of the year were uh, Barbie. Like Barbie, Super Mario Brothers, mm-hmm. and then I think num- at number five was uh, Oppenheimer. Yeah. Um, and like and like two of those um, are franchise movies to be mm. fair but they're not sequels they're like re they're jump starting a, a a a franchise that hadn't had a hit movie in theaters yeah ever yeah. so they were not slam dunks everyone expected them to do mm. that amazing so which is neat yeah i think that's great i think that's, uh, like, that's an encouraging path forward people yeah, are looking for new things the, the the way i've been thinking about 2023 this is uh this is a big turning point year uh, superheroes are over. They're, 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 we're just we're done. <laughs> they're uh, they're gonna keep doing okay, but I don't think they're gonna drive the no, industry again no, no, for a long time. No, a long, yeah. long time. Uh, just that mm. that we had uh, apart from I think uh, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse and Guardians of the Galaxy mm. Volume Three. Yeah, none of the other superhero movies, the major ones, were hits. In fact, some of them were pretty big bombs. I feel like that. I feel like we're we getting one, but yeah, that's basically yeah, we had like, the, the, like the like the Marvels and, and yeah. the Flash and and, and um, Aquaman too. Like all these movies just kind of fell on their faces. People don't yeah. care. <laughs> like the caring has stopped yeah. and uh, I see the 2010s when all of the superheroes and the Star Warses were kind of ascendant yeah uh, as sort of a, a just a t- it was a time when commercial uh, like broad commercial kid friendly entertainments were the dominant genre mm-hmm. and they were driving the, the biggest numbers they were driving the whole industry they were driving the journalism industry they were that the coverage uh, of ongoing mm-hmm. franchises like especially Marvel and DC, but also related stuff that was playing the same game. Mm. Star Wars, Wizarding World. These were all uh, Mm. four-quadrant franchises that people didn't just enjoy, but got really invested in and wanted to talk about what was coming next. And as Uh, a result, when you're writing about mm. movies... The stuff people is excited about is the stuff you're encouraged to write about. Yeah, and, and in fact, uh, look up the uh, the late great James Rocky's yeah. uh, anticipation industrial complex essays that you wrote. He called it the Marvel industrial or Marvel complex. Industrial complex, and, complex yeah. In the years that followed, it's kind of like we, we've been calling it more the anticipation yeah. industrial complex because yeah, it's not he, just Marvel that does it, yeah, but, but they perfected it. J- James Rocky, wonderful, mm. wonderful writer, yeah. uh, reti- got out of the game yep. because he was just sick of how it was going, and, and, I, and I respect him, for, him for that. I admire him um, for it. I see that that whole this last decade yeah. as sort of a parallel to the 1980s. Uh, it's sort of like the that 30 year cycle kind of playing itself through. Yeah. So now in we're that, in the 90s. In that, yeah. yeah, there were the 1980s were also a time of four quadrant effects based blockbusters. Yeah. You got your Star Wars sequels, but also mm-hmm. things like Back to the Future and Ghostbusters and Gremlins, like all these things that uh, 
yeah. guys my age got obsessed with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you they're all they're... movies de- geared towards the kids uh, who star in Stranger Things audience. Yeah. yeah. It's the, stuff, uh, the movies those kids would like. You'll, you'll notice that when, when people talk about, you know, the best films of the 80s, people don't talk about L'Argent or, mm. you know, Fitzcarraldo. Yeah, Room with uh, a View. Like, you know, yeah, Hannah and her sisters. You, people you, don't talk you about might get an Amadeus in there somewhere mm. or do the right thing, I hope. But, like, mostly they it's, talk it's about the genre. It's kids, films, yeah. yeah. And, and then that after the 80s, that sort of fell away and gave rise to the 90s, where there was this big boom of indie films and a lot of international imports. Like, the the texture of what a blockbuster could be changed mm-hmm. immensely. It wasn't yeah. just, like, big studio entertainments. They were yeah. still in the, there. I, if you look at but, the top 10 highest grossing films of the year throughout the, the 90s, you'll see some franchise movies. Yeah, you'll, and, and yeah. Disney pictures, like The yeah, Lion King. Those there, all yeah. did well, but there's a lot more, like... Mm-hmm. There was a lot more like original films in the top ten. Mm. Comedies would be the number one film of the year a couple of times. Yeah, like, that was romantic re- comedies. That's unheard really ever... of now. Mm. That like a movie like Home Alone, if that came out yeah, in theaters yeah. now, that that would be the highest grossing film of the year. So uh, I feel like 2023 is the tens are over. Mm. We're now rolling over into the twenties. And the 20s are going to be the 90s, and yeah. at least that's what I predict, that we're going to have a lot more interesting, textured, mm. uh, ambitious pictures to fill the void that's being left by these failing franchises. Yeah. I, I, I don't disagree, and it'll be interesting mm. to see how it goes. I hope we get there. Uh, and I think this year is um, potentially um, a, a sign of things to come, but we will see. And we, in 10 years, we might... Listen to this podcast again. Not likely, but we might, and we'll go to our and we'll say to ourselves, "Boy, were we off!" <laughs> but sometimes we're well, right. We'll see. Well, who, yeah. Maybe they'll reboot Superman. It'll start over um, again. They, well, they will. Say? But like you know, the weather, whether it will. I, I mean, the success and the yeah, the industry will, will just go continue right back. to go. We'll yeah. see how it goes. But in any case, um, so here we go. We're going to dive right in uh, after 13 minutes. So not really right in, but we'll dive in eventually. And uh, <laughs> giving some context. Yeah, I know. I know. We're, like, we're getting to the actual movie part. Um, as is arbitrary tradition, Whitney, yeah, you, you lead us off. What's the first film right. you want to talk about? Uh, the first film I want to talk about, oh golly, so many to choose from. I want to talk about, uh, there, there were a lot of really like wonderful, weird movies yeah. this year. And I put a lot of like strange off kilter horror pictures on my list. I got a couple of those too. And uh I guess I want to start with uh Canton de Pew's Smoking Causes Coughing. That was <laughs> You might be the only person who has that on their top ten and I love you. I'll, for I'll, it. And I'll take it. I'm fine. Um Smoking Causes Coughing is a a very strange superhero movie. Mm. Um and th- this is another sign that superhero movies are dying. If you can make like this weird <laughs> This very strange anthology picture about superheroes like this one, then it means we're kind of ready to fund the genre a little bit. Yeah. Um, But this is from the same director as films like Wrong and uh, Rubber and uh, uh, that one with the giant fly, uh, Mandibles, it was called. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's an absurdist filmmaker. He likes to do these kind of laconic films about very strange things. Um, Rubber is about a killer tire. Yeah, and it's psychic. a, A psychic living car tires rolling yeah. around a desert town and like shooting psychic bullets at people and making their brains blow up. Yeah. Smoking causes coughing is about the tobacco force. 
Uh, and they're sort of like these uh, Power Rangers type people in helmets, and they fight monsters in these tokusatsu battles, but they're named after dangerous chemicals in cigarettes. So it's yeah. like nicotine and arsenic. And they We used to get this in like comic books. There'd be like one page. It was an advertisement, mm-hmm. but it was like a PSA. And it's like, yeah. in order to get kids excited about fighting cavities, mm-hmm. we're going to have like, a toothpaste force. Like, and they're all superheroes. Man. Yeah, 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 he's going to fight off... Um, the only one of those I, I've ever seen anyone have any affection for. Like, oh, looking back. And it wasn't a PSA. It was just a commercial. It was for Hostess Fruit Pies. Yeah. Well, and that was a whole series. And there was a whole series of like, and they were like, Mar- I think it was mostly Marvel. Um, but it was like, you know, oh, Dr. Doom is going to destroy all of Manhattan. How can we stop him? Spider-Man throws Hostess, Hostess Fruit Pies at him. He's like, and he's like, oh, I'm how, can I, how can I continue destroying Manhattan when, with this delicious goodness in my mouth? Mm. And Spider-Man's like, I don't know. I guess they're just really great and mm. you should buy them. The end. It's great. Also, that version of Spider-Man, canon in the Spider-Verse. <laughs> in the Spider-Verse comics, that oh, was geez. actually... They was, he actually the, had a character. The Fruit Pie. The Fruit Pie version. <laughs> version so like, there's a guy who's uh, going around killing all the Spider-Men and then so, he like uh, throws Fruit Pies at him and it doesn't work and he's like, No! <laughs> The, the tobacco force, like, and of course it's it's absurd, so they, like, fight a monster, and there's, like, a family, like, watching these guys fight the monster, and in, and it explodes in, like, a Peter Jackson sort of, like, early mm. Peter Jackson movie where there's just guts everywhere <laughs> oh, and everybody's God. coated in blood, and then they turn to the family that's watching saying, I know that was really traumatized, here's a card, here's a shrink, that'll take care of that for you, <laughs> also... I know we name ourselves after cigarettes, but we're really anti-smoking. Mm. We're like we're trying to show you that because we have destructive powers, that cigarettes are destructive. Okay, what? Uh, <laughs> and then they get a call on their superhero van from their boss, and their boss looks like another uh, Peter Jackson reference. He looks like the rat from Meet the Feebles. Oh god! Like it's this really revolting puppet, and he's sexually irresistible. All of the women are <laughs> flirting with this like revolting rat puppet, and the rat puppet says. Okay, you guys are overtired. Go to a lake, take a vacation. And they go to a lake and they take a vacation. They get this special high tech uh, superhero van, and nothing happens. <laughs> they tell each other stories. It's it's like the Decameron, and it becomes an anthology picture. <laughs> Where they kind of like cut to these little vignettes or like, oh, well, I heard about this story. Here's like a story that happened with this little girl. Here's a story about a guy who fell into a wood chipper and but he survived somehow. And and that's what the story is about. Um, And it ends with the end of the universe, I think. It's kind of unclear. Uh, I'm 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 ready. My body is ready. For this kind of bullshit absurdity, and I've I've been missing bullshit absurdity. There's there's, there's not enough a, of it. There's been a sense of seriousness to a lot of these kid friendly entertainments over mm-hmm. the last decade. Taking themselves very seriously. Yeah, it's like yeah. you know we can satirize this mm-hmm. cleverly or in a very dismissive fashion. I feel like that the world wasn't in the mood for that. Seeing yeah. smoking causes coughing kind of opened my eyes a little bit. Oh, we're ready to have a little fun again. Yeah. We're ready to make fun of this again. And, you know, the part of me that watched shows like uh, The Tick and Freakazoid back in the 90s, like, okay, we're, we're, we're a little bit back. So I, I had to put it on my top 10 list. Uh, I'm glad you did. I didn't see it, but I can tell you right now, audience, if you're listening to this, it's like, is he making that up? Mm. Um, it's what I like to call a Whitney movie. <laughs> 
I just every once in a while you hear about a movie or you watch a movie mm. and it's exactly like the kind of shit that Whitney just described. <laughs> and you, you just want to text Whitney and mm. just say, you're going to love this. And I'm always right. <laughs> so I didn't get well, that. Well, that didn't well, happen this time, say? but I it got, sounds I, like it's up your ass. I guess I got a type. Uh, you do. That's yeah. fine. That's fine. I, I'm sure. I, I, I have too. some other like penetrating adult dramas on my list as well oh, that's but, fine. I, but I also have some really bizarre I, films I have, as well. a, I have at least one like really broad comedy on mine but um i'm gonna start off with probably the most obscure film on my list all right uh because um it debuted on shutter okay and uh, it wasn't one of the ones that like got a lot of traction a lot of everyone was talking about it uh but it is one that i don't know anyone who's seen this movie and said that sucked hmm. like everyone i know who was actually bothered to watch influencer Oh, says it's really great. Been talking about influencer all year. Yeah, yeah. influencer is this really splendid um, Hitchcockian thriller, uh, and in in that best possible way, where um, you know the 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 setup is strong. It's but it's it's so striking. I can't really. I don't want to ruin it for you. But the setup is very very strong. And then once the setup takes. Okay, let me let me compare it to something like Dial M for Murder. Hmm. All right, where uh, it's not that plot, but it kind of has the structure. Uh, in Dial M for Murder, a guy plots the perfect murder. He wants to kill his wife because she's having an affair. And the first half of the movie is him outlining how I have thought out every single detail. And the second half is about how, no, he didn't. There's, <laughs> uh, something happens that messes up his plan. Yeah, something, it all it all. And it's about him trying it. to cover for himself, and it does that wonderful Hitchcock thing where yeah. you start wanting the killer to get away with it yeah so and again that's not what happens in influencer but it's kind of that sort of oh what else can go wrong mm. uh kind of film uh but influencer uh stars a woman named emily Tennant uh as a social media influencer and she has gone abroad uh in thailand to take pictures of herself in pretty places so that her if, if people who follow her buy stuff give money she'll get sponsorships all that kind of crap uh, but she's alone. Her boyfriend didn't make the trip with her. It's just a miserable, boring work assignment. She's in one of the most beautiful places in the world, and she's lonely and miserable. And into her life uh, walks uh, a woman named C.W., played by Cassandra Nod, who is really great, and I really, really hope that people see her in this movie and give her like more of a breakout role. She had another small role and a very good uh, sort of... Uh, slasher comedy uh, called It's a Wonderful Knife which is like Catherine Isabel's girlfriend not a big role but she's good in it here she's the lead um, and so or co-lead rather uh, she says I know I, I, I live here I can show you all the cool stuff in Thailand and they start hanging out together and they start forming a real friendship and eventually Cassandra Nod takes our, our, our heroine somewhere unexpected I will not tell you what it is. It will. It's not like the. Oh, I'm gonna take it to Mars. Like no, 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 no. Right. But it's not where you think it's going. And then from that point on, the movie takes a pretty hard right turn and becomes something very different. And I loved it. It is so creative without bending or breaking uh, uh, any rules mm-hmm. in our reality. You know, it doesn't feel like, okay, well, who would actually, like, run the the torture palace and hostel? Yeah. Like, I don't I don't actually buy it. Right. I'm willing to accept it for the movie, but it doesn't seem real. Influencer feels like the kind of thriller that is very plausible. 
uh, and that makes it very, very frightening. Uh, and yet it has a weird, dark sense of humor, and uh, I wish I could talk about it more, but it really is the kind of movie where just just enjoy it. Just watch it, enjoy it. I, I think you're going to really have a good time being genuinely thrilled by something that is just characters mm. uh, talking a little bit of peril. Like, it's just... I, I, mm, it's so hard to sell this movie! <laughs> it's so, I just want to say, mm. trust me, and it's so hard. It's, it, it's, it's almost got the... Um, uh, the red eye effect. Oh, where, where you, there's you, something happens. Ha- yeah. You have to say you have to give away what the big twist is just in order to sell the movie. Yeah, because otherwise it's it's nothing. Like if you've ever seen the movie Red Eye, Rachel McAdams uh, is a woman. She's getting on a plane and she meets a really cute guy in the airport. He's played by Killian Murphy. They hit it off, and then it turns out they're on the same plane and they're seated next to each other. Oh my god, look at this cute rom com! And then he kidnaps her in front of everybody in mid flight. Yeah. It's and like def- if, if, they- if you do anything, I'll kill you. I have someone on the phone, and they'll kill your dad. And she's just kidnapped in public, and she can't say anything. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's a great thriller. That twist happens like over thirty minutes into the movie, <laughs> give or take. And like, yeah. you're, like it's supposed to be like a huge surprise, but there is literally no way, unless you caught this randomly on television, that you would see that movie without knowing it's a thriller. Because uh-huh. you can't tell people it's a romantic comedy, and then it turns into that the revolt. They'll be mad. I didn't get what I paid for. Mm. So it's a dangerous move. But um, I, I do think Influencer rides that out well. And it's, okay. it's just a really excellent thriller. And it's it's smart as well. And it's actually... Uh, it, it's it, it's so damn good. I'm just gonna <laughs> okay. I'm just gonna be inarticulate about this one. And I'll try to make up for it later. But, Whitney, what's your next fair, pick? Well, you know what? You put it on your best of the year. I did. That should at least yeah. tell somebody that this is worth seeing. Yeah, there's well, a, lot not, a lot of great movies. Did. Oppenheimer um, is not on my list. Influencer is. Okay. There you go. Um, My next film I want to talk about is uh, sort of a a light family drama comedy from England called Scrapper. Oh, that's nice. I like Scrapper a lot. And that's Um, a movie I did tell you you should see. Yeah. You you, you pointed me towards Scrapper, and I dug Scrapper. I was reminded of Danny Boyle's Millions in the way it uh, sort of looks at a harrowing situation. situation of a young character like mm-hmm. a, a kid character but finds like a like a fantastical edge where they have a lot of agency mm-hmm. it's about a young girl she's like about 12 or 13 mm-hmm. her mom is dead yeah and she's been uh scrapping that is yeah. going out and getting scrap metal and selling it to make yeah. ends meet and she is expert con man already yeah. uh, the, the, the social security people mm-hmm. think that she's living with a relative and it's actually and they're hiring she's, not... she's hiring like a friend to talk on the phone as yeah. the relative so yeah. she's living on her own as a child mm-hmm. uh and clever enough to make that work for a while mm-hmm. and then into her but, life but it's not it's not precocious the, the reality is clear yeah, she's she's clever yeah. but i'm not saying this isn't like a wes anderson thing yeah she's just she's just clever and can pull off the ruse mm-hmm. uh, there is a little bit of sort of whimsy humor or some of like mm. the supporting cast but but then into her life rather unexpectedly and she's kind of enjoying the freedom of it even though she's not processing her grief uh, into her life just all of a sudden walks her dad who she's her, never her, met her, her absent dad, who's also a young guy he's yeah. like 22 and yeah. like well not that no, young, no. He's, but... he's in his he's in his like late 20s yeah, he's... and like he said that we, we got married too young or we had a, a kid too young and we both agreed it wasn't a good idea for uh you know to stay together and so i left mm. Uh, and I just found out your mom died, and I just found out that you're living alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now I'm here, and she's like, "No," and, and, and he's she, like, "Yeah," and 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 she like closes the door on his face and goes to her friends like, 
and like asks for advice. What do you think? Should this is my dad? Is he all right? Well, maybe he was in prison. Maybe he's a vampire. Like a certain thing. thing. Like, I love what, when what the kid says. On? Maybe he's a vampire, and and the little girl's just like, I, I can't believe I know you. I can't. It's, <laughs> it's like the stupidest thing anyone's ever yeah. said, and you actually meant that. I'm disappointed in you as a and, person. And there's a lot of light, self-aware <laughs> moments where, like, uh, supporting characters, not not any of the main characters, just people yeah. sort of in the background, turn to the camera and sort of comment on the action a little yeah. bit, which keeps things a little bit light. It's really short. It's like 84 minutes. Oh yeah, brisk uh, in and out, but and dense it, and though. It doesn't feel it, like nothing happens. Well, and, and we actually get to know in a very sweet way, but also in a very believable way, the relationship between this girl and her young father mm-hmm. the kind of life that they're going to forge together um if if you want sort of like a modern spin on paper moon this is kind of it uh it, it's it's really just delightful uh it's uh you've probably seen this kind of story in indie dramas before mm-hmm. but this time they they the filmmaker i forgot her name um let me look up the, the director oh name. yeah i don't have that at um, either, sorry the director is named charlotte regan yeah. and um yeah, she brings just just a certain kind of unique verve uh, yeah. to to this kind of material. There's, uh, it's just affected enough yeah. where it feels like a style without undercutting any of the seriousness of the situation. And, and it's tricky because this is the kind of story like, oh, it's a, a little kid meeting a, a parent they didn't know they had, and they mm. have to form a relationship and bond. And boy, has that been done? Mm-hmm. That type of indie movie in particular but that can be mawkish or modern yeah. or sentimental or just, yeah, or just it's been done you mm. know it's just like how do you how do you keep that fresh and you know you like can this tell, with this yeah. kind of style yeah. with these kinds yeah. of characters exactly. and those you, actors you can yeah. try to add a twist to it if you want but if you just are a confident enough storyteller you have the way you tell stories and you know it is distinct um you can just put your own spin on it and it, this movie does this movie is I'm so glad this movie didn't make mine but I'm really glad this made your list because yeah. I love it. It's great. Mm. It's really, really wonderful. Yay! <laughs> what a scrappy little film. Uh, my next film is also a story about um, an unlikely relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who end up growing close over the course of the film. And although one of them looks like a young person, they're actually not. Because it's this uh, fantasy sci-fi piece. And I know you oh. weren't a huge fan of it, uh, mm. but I picked Nimona. Oh god, I hated Nimona. <laughs> You're so wrong for hating Nimona. Yeah. I, I understand not being into it. I don't understand hate. I know mm. what you said it was just the style or tone, but it... I, this movie really deeply affected me. Okay, uh, I, I really loved Nimona a lot. Nimona is based off of uh, a graphic novel, and it is a story of uh, a sort of you know, there's a high fantasy kind of thing. There's magic and knights and wizardry and stuff like that, but it's also in the future. So they've also got high tech science, which is just a fun, Mm -hmm. weird place to be. Um, and, uh, there is a knight who is just about to be knighted. And he's like the first person who like didn't come from noble blood to do that. And he's voiced by Riz Ahmed. And, um, just when he's about to become like the hero of the people, yes, you, you, anyone can like step out of their class and and mm. be great. He is framed for an assassination. Yeah, like a, there's there's a, a disaster at his cor- his coronation or his knight knighting and whatever yeah. it is. And, and yeah, now everyone thinks that, he, he killed on, the president basically. And, and he's and he's on the lam. Yeah. Uh, his boyfriend is working for the queen. Yeah, she, he, he's like the, the poster boy for the knights and, and yeah. can't rat him out. So like, yeah. there's this weird alienation because now he's yeah. he's a fugitive. His yeah. his boyfriend is. A cop, yeah, and he falls in with Nimona, the yeah. title character. Nimona is uh, a shapeshifter, and although Nimona usually takes the form of uh, like presents themselves as like a young girl, um, 
It's also on animals. Oh, also yeah, and, and boys, old men. Yeah, Riz Ahmed ladies, is, yeah. is deeply uncomfortable. His character with mm-hmm. Nimona. She's uh, Nimona's played by Chloe Grace Moretz, and he has been trying to fit in in what we gradually learn has been a very oppressive society, and basically becoming a cop was his way of assimilating. Mm-hmm. And Nimona, who has been. Uh, uh, because they're a shapeshifter, they've been uh, ostracized for, it turns out, a very long time. Uh, sees in his character a kindred spirit, whether he realizes it or not, and they try to work together to overthrow the entire mm. system and also try to reprogram Riz Ahmed so that he like gets out of this like weird binary, you know, good, bad mm. uh, mentality. Well, and even, and even he always just says, Hey, can't you just be a girl? Cause she's the, no one is constantly shape-shifting. And the says, I'm not a girl. Mm. I'm a shark. Mm. And at that point they're a shark. They're a shapeshifter. They have no standard state. Yeah. They are, you, you can Although, see it as non-binary, you can see it as, you mo- know. Mostly a 14-year-old girl. But, yeah. Uh, but again, that's just how they yeah. present. But like, but regardless, it doesn't change who they mm-hmm. are. And so this is a movie that does in a very, you know, it looks like a family film, and in some respects it is, um, ends up tackling in a very direct way, through very refreshing but direct allegory, um, non-binary trans experiences, but also mm-hmm. a, a genuine spirit of like, punk revolution that we actually can overthrow through mm. actual like by doing something by like actually creating chaos and yeah. like forcing people to challenge their perceptions and it ultimately concludes not with like a really exciting action sequence or not with a big musical number or like in wish it concludes essentially with like an intervention because someone's been pushed so far that they're they're actually like essentially destroyed. Oh, hi Dante! <laughs> I didn't realize my one of our cats yeah, was in the here. Cat is in here. I think one of the cats uh, is trying to come in here and say hi to him. If you hear the I, uh, door knocking. Anyway, I loved it and I found uh, it like really powerful and actually very encouraging and very punk rock. I I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I even like the soundtrack. They they put like yeah. the Dolly Rots, like some modern pop punk on the yeah. soundtrack. Um, uh. I wish for a film that was ostensibly about chaos that it was actually chaotic and not clean and ugly. Uh, it's uh, and I found Nimona to be one of the most grating film characters I've seen in a movie in a long time. She is not a character; she's a collection they. of cliches and uh, and, and uh, uh, catchphrases. Okay. They, I apologize. Yeah. Uh, Nimona is largely female but uh also male and other other well they an, again an, they say they're an animal and creature they're not yeah. anything they're they're the yeah. the state of of transition the state of change yeah. that is their state so yeah. um, and i think that's something that has been not articulated well in fiction and certainly not in fiction aimed at younger people mm. and i think namona is actually really inspiring for the way that it takes this concept that sadly is difficult for some people to wrap their heads around mm. and presents it in a way that is uh clear exciting heroic mm. um but also emotionally earnest and doesn't like underplay uh the active oppression that is going on both in the world of the film and in the world mm. in which we live um you know this movie actually has like a really weird kind of fucked up backstory where disney acquired the studio uh that was making it when they acquired fox and they took a look at the script and they said can you remove all the queerness 
And no, well, the main character is queer. Uh, uh, the, yeah, both the main characters are queer. They're, one of them is gender queer, and one of them is, is oh, yeah. gay. Uh, and they're just like, can you just like kind of just not? Mm-hmm. And they said no. <laughs> and the movie kind of like got on the back burner until I think it was Annapurna. Uh, picked it up and released it with Netflix. Mm. Uh, this was a movie that just by being queer was considered too rebellious to release. <laughs> Which is weird because it feels unbearably safe to me. I wanted it to be a lot more edgy, a lot more out on the edge, uh-huh. a lot more well, confrontational about the things that it had brought up. I agree with that it brought up all the things you're talking yeah. about, well, but I wasn't impressed with the way they did it. I, I, think, I feel it could have been a lot more assertive, a lot yeah. more uh, chaotic, a lot more punk rock uh, deconstruction. This could have raised a middle finger and it didn't. And I, that's, I, what, that's what upset me about it. I, I see your point about mm-hmm. it being a matter of degrees, but mm-hmm. I'm going to... I think I'm going to make this point about another film I'm going to discuss on this list. I think that sometimes our expectations for certain movies are based on an idealized scenario. And sometimes the movie isn't attempting that. I think Mm -hmm. when you are trying to gear a movie that will be uh, palatable uh, to Mm -hmm. kids who are maybe just being introduced to these concepts for the very Mm -hmm. first time... um, you don't necessarily want to throw them entirely off the de- uh, into the I, I deep end, and so this is an introduction. Maybe and I think yeah. it's okay to do that. I think it, the movie doesn't have to be every single part of the thing. No, and I think I, I admire I think, how far it goes. I think it goes really far for a kids' uh, movie. Uh, big parts of me just want to keep on saying "fuck palatable," just you know, know. make it make it as dangerous as possible. That would have been more fun. for I me. understand, but I'm I'm going to judge the film based on like what it is, and I think mm. what it is 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 really really valuable. And right. you may, could it have been more punk rock? Sure. Mm. Um, is it great? I think so. Okay. Uh, and I think what it does is you know, and again. This shouldn't be the end of your conversation of uh, punk rock rebellious uh, uh, cinema. Please, see Nimona, and when you're done, go see Born in Flames. Uh, right. <laughs> or go, I was just like, go see something that's like, that's like or, really, uh, like, or at least when you grow up a little bit, mm-hmm. like, see, really, you know, go to the challenging stuff. But I think this is a great gateway to that. Or if, if you want a film that's about dangerous, edgy queerness... Mm-hmm. Uh, watch the next film on my list because hey. I'm going to talk about Bottoms. Yeah, that's on my list too. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, because I adore, I fucking adore Bottoms. Yes, Bottoms me too. is fucking great. Um, yes, agreed. Because Bottoms is filthy. Yes, it is. <laughs> it, like, is it is messy in a way that I haven't seen like like a teen, especially a teen comedy be mm. in a really long time. And unlike a lot of the teen comedies that were messy, like when we were teenagers, mm. like stuff like the American Pie type shit. It's actually kind of responsible about it. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. It, it's still like gross and in your face and hypersexual, mm. but it's also not like oh, that's actually kind of fucked up. Mm. I don't know if I'm actually well, okay with because it's about main characters, these yeah. teenage characters yeah. who are kind of morally depraved. Like right. they, they they are shallow and horny idiots. Yeah, and they make and, a uh, really selfish call, selfish calls and bad decisions, yeah. but in a really entertaining way. Yeah, uh, and the movie engages yeah. with that. It doesn't pretend that that's not an issue, which yes. would why you get away with it. This is directed by Emma Seligman, who did Shiva Baby with yeah. uh, Rachel Senod. Rachel Senod, who yeah. is the star. She also co-wrote this movie. Uh, she and her best friend, who's played by um, Ayo Edebiri, uh, um, they are two young queer teenagers. Mm. 
complete outsiders at their high school. Not because they're queer, but because they're assholes. Because they're assholes, because they have no talent, because mm. they're not standing out. It's like, they're a whole bunch of popular queer and, kids in their school. Mm. In fact, when they even, like, and, and this is in such, like, a Savage Steve Holland, Better Off Dead heightened universe, yeah. that, like, when they're called into the principal's mm. office, the principal says, will the untalented gays yeah. come to the principal's <laughs> office? And, it means, and they and know he, it means Everyone them. knows yeah. who they mean. And uh, so to get out of getting in trouble at school with the principal, because uh, they they because they they, uh, they there was an altercation at a school event and the star they, they quarterback into the star quarterback. No, they didn't. Or, he got it got oh, that's close. Right. They, they didn't hit him. They yeah, almost did, they, but he they, pretends that they, they hit came him. like a foot away from hitting him with their car, and then he's like, no, and he like falls over like and it's then, in some kind of like fucking Tex Avery cartoon. And Rachel Senat has a huge, huge crush on his ostensible girlfriend. <laughs> So yeah. uh, she drives her off, and it's like, okay, this is this is I'm in, I'm I'm in there. Yeah. Of course, she's not because she's yeah. a, a horrible person. Yeah. But uh, the, the the weird setup for the plot is uh, that there's a competition, like a like a a yearly football event uh-huh. between this school and another school, and the other school is evil, hmm. and they have a tendency to attack people and like destroy things, and so they say, listen, we are going to in. Uh, we were defending ourselves, and in order to justify this, they tell the principal, we are going to start a self-defense class for women in this school. Sure, we're qualified to do that. So you mean like a fight club? Yeah. Basically, it's a fight club. So, it's, so they start a teen it's, fight club it's a teen, to meet girls. A teen comedy, a queer teen comedy version of fight club. Sold! Yeah. Uh, and... They, it, and they're, they're I, pretending to be badasses, and they're really just everyone just hitting each other in the face. That's most of the movie. <laughs> it's a, a Marshawn Lynch, the football star, yeah. has like he plays like a coach who has to be their sponsor. Yeah, he's hilarious. He's in great. This movie. Uh, I feel like teen, com- yeah, teen comedies haven't felt like this in a long time. Yeah. Uh, a lot of teen comedies have been very sensitive in the last mm-hmm. uh, decade or so. Well, they've been I mean, very safe, I think. Yeah, they've very, been very, even, like, you know, even things when, are kind of nice in high school, yeah, even, are they? Even when we uh, have, like, queer stories, like in uh, something like... Uh, Love, Simon. Love, Simon, exactly. Yeah. That's that, that's a completely toothless movie. Simon has no character yeah. at all. My big issue with Love, Simon isn't isn't anything to do with the filmmaking it's just that simon is such a wet shirt like yeah. the main character is dull they're they're, uh, they're, they're nice to mm. such a degree that they're not interesting mm. anymore yeah I, i've i've yeah. talked a lot about what i call protagonist syndrome yeah where the main character of your story always kind of by necessity has to be a bit of a cipher yeah. they're the normal one in this kind of chaotic worlds because you're supposed to relate to them they're your anchor at least that's and, the theory and then they're also but they're surrounded by really interesting best friend characters who presumably have their lives together. They're a lot more outspoken. Mm. Why aren't the movies ever about those characters? Yeah. Bottoms is bottoms yeah. is about the weird there, side. There's characters. no normal safe character. Yeah. Everyone is heightened or, or strange. Um, Nicholas Galatine, who uh, plays the, 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 the quarterback. Mm genius comedic performance. He <laughs> like, is unbelievably it, wonderful the, in this movie. The, the the conceit is that he's supposed to be like ultra masculine, but they like they queer code him like to the yeah. gills. It's really but, wonderful. But he's still sleeping with everybody. Mm-hmm. And like, there's a bit where he starts like uh, one of the other people in the fight club. What a great breakout performance too. Ruby Cruz. 
just mm. absolutely wonderful. Uh, like they're actually doing most of the work in the Fight Club, and they're not appreciated at all. And then Nicholas Galatine starts uh, sleeping with her mom, <laughs> and that subplot oh, goes in really wonderful places. It all climaxes with, and I'm not going to ruin it. You said chaos, chaos, chaos. Yeah, the, the climax of Bottoms is Legitim- absolutely wild, legitimate violence. It's like wonderful. it's really, really, really nuts. Like I, like this has been kind of heightened. I didn't think we were going here, and bless them. <laughs> and they, and in, in, in the midst of all of this wildness, in the midst of all of this uh, debauchery, um, they actually do talk about how. All of these, all this humor, and uh, you know the, these like these types of like uh, uh, r- relationships that are ultimately here based on things like violence are ways that they are processing actual shit that is happening to them. Mm. Um, things like uh, sexual assault, things like not being, uh, uh, mm. not understanding like who they are, are they their queerness, and. Um, all of that is real, all of that is potent, and all of that is also very silly in it's, a way yeah. that is somehow not undermining the seriousness of those topics. It, that it, is a difficult thing to do, and by God, Bottoms nails it. it. It proves that you can address something well, seriously, and you know, without making light of it, while still making light of it. Yeah, yeah. There's still, still humor to be found in these desperate situations. People think that, like... I think some people who don't understand comedy or, or have very limited views on comedy think that, you know, nowadays people are so sensitive, you can't joke about sensitive topics. You can, you just need to find a way to make it actually funny instead of just being a shitty bully. Yeah. For many years, that was enough. And nowadays we're just saying, I just don't think that's funny anymore. Yeah. You can make, you can tell that joke. Mm. I don't want to give you money or watch your shows anymore because... Personally, I think what you're saying is really shitty and it's contributing to an environment that makes a lot of people just uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't like that. And that's a very reasonable thing to say. But Bottoms proves that you can actually take a lot of those things and make genuine humor out of it. Edgy humor that isn't irresponsible. Yeah. And yet still feels punk. Like, it's really, <laughs> really great. I'm so glad this is on my list. I think this is the funniest movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's the funniest movie we've seen since, like, Game Night. I'm trying to think of the last like really just top to bottom I laughed so hard in the theater I mm. thought it was going to pass out funny a, a, a film uh, the, the people who made Game Night came out with another comedy film this year that um, I oh, actually yeah. re-watched it's good I, it's, it's not on my top 10 it's on my run yeah. but it, it is on my runners up and yeah. it's Dungeons and Dragons Honors among, Honor Among Thieves it's just a fun uh, movie it's like that's the way I think blockbusters should be like like yeah. these just sort of fun broad adventures with light characters mm-hmm. and an easy to follow story and, some occasional yeah. weirdness to them like it's it's a breezy exciting there, there's, bit there's of some like wit and cleverness to yeah. the, the action scene there's a scene in dungeons and dragons where uh, there's a character who's a, another another shapeshifter character yeah. can turn into animals mm. um and uh she can turn into a mouse so she yeah. like crawls into a suit of armor turns into a person starts running somebody in the sticks armor, in yeah. the armor but then somebody takes a swing at them they turn back into a mouse they it's all like one a, shot yeah, like, it's really like, good like, like clever stuff they yeah. have a, a magical portal at one point that like it's a painting it's yeah like a, and they can like put it and they're gonna hide it in a room and then sneak through this portal into the room yeah like through another portal elsewhere and uh like it falls over but then it falls over like against the ground and <laughs> when they open up their own portal they o- can only see the ground it's like well Shit. We can't do anything now. 
Yeah, it's, it's like this, clever uh, stuff like that. Uh, uh, the the bit at the beginning, and if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, this isn't ruining anything because they because they set up everything with to do with Jarnathan. Jarnathan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can we can we wait until Jarnathan gets here? <laughs> I really think Jarnathan would understand. <laughs> That whole bit, and it's such a great payoff, and then there's a payoff on top of the payoff, and it's and, and so there's great. A, there's a payoff later in the movie there as well. Is, yeah. It's so good. Oh my god. Yeah, it's a really wonderful movie. It, it didn't make my runners up, actually, but it, I'm glad it made yours, and we're glad we're talking right. about because it, it's delightful. But, uh, um, let's see, what else do yeah, I have? Yeah, you, uh, yeah that, that, I had bottoms as well, so we go right back to you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Let's see. So I, I talked about Scrapper. I talked about mm-hmm. Bottoms. I don't have any other comedies, unfortunately. All, uh, all of my other ones are pretty, like... One other pretty comedy. hefty and dark. So I'm just going to skew yeah. hefty and dark. Okay. I'm going to talk about Bo is Afraid. You know, I didn't see that. Uh, I never you, got around to I it. think you'd hate it. Um, uh, I suspect I might. It's, it's, it's about, why I didn't rush It's out. about three hours long, and you are going to die of a panic attack, because the movie is a three-hour panic attack. Great. Uh, this is Ari Aster. He's back. Uh, maker of of uh, Hereditary. That that laugh riot. And Midsommar. And, and Midsommar. That, that laugh, laugh riot. riot. Yeah. yeah. Here's... here's uh, Bo is Afraid stars Joaquin Phoenix as Bo, uh, and he... Begins the film uh, talking to a shrink, and he leaves the shrink's office, and he lives essentially in hell, like this mm. urban hellscape. The the city is just falling apart. You could be forgiven that's like a in a post apocalyptic future. Yeah. Uh, his apartment. He's like constantly being chased down the street. Like he can't get into his his uh, house on time. He's afraid people are going to break into his building. Uh, he gets some anti uh, or anti-anxiety medication. Yeah. He takes some and then realizes that he's supposed to take it with water and he doesn't have any water in his house because the plumbing's turned off. So th- there's a sequence early in the movie where he has to sort of like sprint across the street and drink water really fast. And while he's doing it, people are like running up to him and saying, help me, help me, help me. Like everybody's screaming and he's propped open his door with a phone book and he has to get back really quick and oh shit, somebody like has broken into his apartment. And the next sequence is hundreds of people fl- and he looks in from the outside, flooding into his apartment and just trashing his place. This is the world we're in. You just okay. get to see your world get torn apart. And he's constantly freaking out about everything. And everything, of course, comes back to his mother. That's what he's been talking about mm-hmm. with his shrink. He gets a call from his mom. His mom says, I need you to come home right away. I can't, mom. I'm going to guilt you and guilt you and guilt you for not coming home. Hang on. She po- hangs up the phone. He gets a call a minute later saying, hey, I just arrived at your mom's house. She's dead. <laughs> what? Yeah, a chandelier fell on her head. What? This is the kind of movie the director thinks is a comedy and everyone else thinks is a horror movie, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. It's, okay. You can't tell if it's... Like, this is where... Uh, like, he gets into a tub, he lays back, he looks up at the ceiling, and there's a guy there up on the ceiling <laughs> hanging on, sweating. He's like, are they gone? It's like, what nightmare did I wander into? And it doesn't let up. It just yeah. keeps on at that pitch. And uh, the movie... His mother is dead, and now he has to go uh, to his mother's funeral. Who and he, it's sort of like he has to get on the road and get there, but there's all of these complications with the plane ticket, and he's chased and he's hit by a car. The idea being that his mother, although she is dead, is now still guilting him and dictating his behavior from beyond the grave. Sure, you're late for her funeral, and and you, people have had anxiety dreams like that. I can't yeah. get somewhere, or yeah. I'm late for a test. That right. kind of I, stuff. I, I just had a, it's it's I, I feel bad laughing, but um. Uh, when my when my grandmother died on my mother's side, mm. uh, my grandmother was late to my grandmother's funeral. <laughs> they like uh, lost the they like lost the coffin in the oh no! plane. <laughs> so they didn't the coffin.
coffin didn't arrive in time. Oh jeez. Oh god, that was a dark day. <laughs> that was you have to you can you can only laugh because yeah. like what else can you do? But like that was that's a scene out of a movie that was ridiculous. Yeah, but Bo Jesus. ends up being taken in by uh, uh, Nathan Lane and his family, and they at first they seem like they're going to take care of him, but it's because he's injured in a car accident. But it turns out they're just really really horrible as well. Uh, yeah. He ends up fleeing into the woods and falls in with this artist's enclave who listen to his uh, story and they enact his whole life uh, on the stage in front of him. Uh, and it goes on like that. It just gets more and more surreal as you go on. Mm. Uh, c- keep note of uh, what's living in the attic when he finally gets to a certain location and goes into the attic and what's in there. And it's like, it's a t- totally gross and absurd and hilarious, but also terrifying and, uh-huh. and all, all of that. Remember uh, when I said at the beginning that although mm. we're recommending all of these things, they're not going to be, like, not necessarily for everyone? Mm. I'm, you're describing this, and I'm like, I know I'll probably have to see this at some point, but I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> some people are listening to this yeah. and going, I have to see this movie, or mm. you've seen the movie, like, yeah, this movie was great. Well, and if, I'm, everything you're describing is just like, I, I, I'm I, good. <laughs> if, if you... Uh, <laughs> If you understand, I wrestle with anxiety. Obviously. If you understand, yeah. If you if understand anxiety, if you understand yeah. guilt, uh, oh, do this, I? Yeah, oh, this, yes. especially as it comes to like familial guilt and uh, yeah, you, know, the, yeah. you, you all constantly in a, where you feel like you're in a constant state of failure when it comes to your family. That's what this film is keying into, and I yeah. think it does it incredibly uh, aptly. I think it does it like in a, a kind of psychologically real way that a lot of films don't try to get to because a lot of films try to bring an arc to that. There's a way mm. to deal with that or confront it or talk to your parents about it or at least learn to live with that kind of guilt or turn your back on it. Um, this is just about getting in the filth yeah. and staying in it because that's what it feels like when you're in there. Yeah. Uh, whenever you're in sort of a dark state, it feels eternal. Um, but I was afraid it's three hours. <laughs> Perfect. Um, well, I don't have, uh, uh, another story about Joaquin Phoenix going on a road trip to get to his mother's funeral, mm. but I do have another, uh, movie about, uh, baggage with your dead parents and that's all of us strangers. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. yeah. I, I liked it more than you, but I loved it. <laughs> okay. Um, all of us strangers, uh, stars Andrew Scott from, uh, from Fleabag and he's, and we, we literally just talked about, I think of the last episode. Um, so I, I won't go into too much detail, but. Uh, he's a writer, and he's trying to write about his own life, his mm. like own experiences. Uh, but his parents died when he was very, very young. And he's always felt kind of incomplete because of that, because they were taken from him, and he's like kind of been living half a life. Uh, when he goes back to his hometown to do you know some research, uh, he goes back to his childhood home. And who is living there? His parents, and they mm. haven't aged a day. In fact, now they look younger than he is. And they see him, and they are happy to see him, and everyone understands that they're dead, but we're trying not to talk about that because it would ruin the moment. Mm. And over the course of the film, the initial shock and joy is there, and it's great, and it's beautiful. And then as he goes back, it's like, I finally get to tell my parents that I'm gay. They never knew the real me. Mm. And I don't know how they're going to take it now. And now he's going to get to find out like how, how his parents would under, would uh, take his life. Or, you know, they, would, they would understand like hmm. who the person he was. Would they like him? Would they accept him? And their reactions are sloppy. Mm-hmm. Especially his mom. But like, there's this beautiful scene with Jamie Bell uh, where 
he 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 knows that his the mother told him I guess somewhere in the afterlife, and um, he's talking to him like I'm I'm fine with it, but I'm questioning every single interaction I ever had with you in which I tried to ask you to act like a man mm-hmm. or like do boy things that are like really like macho or where I didn't like. I heard you crying in your room and I didn't say anything and I'm regretting all of that. And he's just devastated, but he's at, it's important that we not just completely forgive him. He's actually like taking himself to task and like, it, that's such a painful, beautiful scene. Mm. And it's like, I needed to hear you say that, but God, you put me through hell and that whole, Oh God, that just killed me. <laughs> oh God, that I, scene just, I cried so mm. hard watching I, that I love, scene. I love that scene. Yeah, I love that, and I love the scene he has. I love the the coming out scene he has with his mother, mm-hmm. and I love the scene he has with his father, where he kind yeah. of like gets to talk to them about his queerness, and they're essentially frozen in the eighties when he was twelve. Yeah, they don't know anything and, um, about like, and like the mother is just like, she's totally like, ignorant about yeah, it. I don't it's know like, what that's like, and I, as far as I know, you're not allowed to get married. Yeah, it's like, like what are you going to do about getting married? And he just says, "We can do that now." And, oh. and she's like, yeah, she's like a little shaken by that because she's yeah. a woman from eighties, and uh, yeah, uh, and this is bookended with a, a love story that he's having with a man back in his building, is played by, by Paul Mezcal. Yeah, and that's and, a beautiful uh, story. And it's sort of about uh, it's very surreal in a way because yeah, they're they the seem, only two people in the building. They seem to be the only two people in this massive uh, um, apartment building, and you know, like the uh, early in the movie, a fire alarm goes out, and like they're the only ones who leave. Yeah, uh, either everybody's still in there, or they're the only ones. I, in I there. think there's uh, a line where they say they're the first two people to move in. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, but it feels the way it's shot and just the tone of it, it feels kind of post-apocalyptic. Yeah. Uh, for a second, I thought it was a science fiction story about time travel, like he was yeah. actually going back in time to visit his parents. I thought for uh, a while that he was, and this isn't where it goes. Cause I think this would be kind of trite that we were going to find that like he was like in limbo. Oh, okay. And, like, yeah. it's, like, none of this is taking place in the real world, mm-hmm. and that's not where the movie is going at all. Well, but like, yeah. my, my big issue is they actually do put a button, like, as to what the actual rules of this universe are, and that yeah. makes it seem a little trite. Um, mm. uh, we disagree on that, but... I'll, I'll, yeah, like, yeah. I, I, I guess I just didn't like the ending, is what I'm saying. I, I like um, the ending, and I'll just... With, and I'll be vague. Mm. I think the ending reminds us that, although this is not, like, a scary movie, this is a movie mm. about using the supernatural as a way to sort of literalize really processing your childhood and Mm -hmm. actually, you know, your parents aren't here, but you can engage with your feelings about them. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of just taking something psychological and making it sort of fantastically real. I think the end of the movie reminds you that this movie is a ghost story. Okay. Well, I I was going to make it that explicit, but... uh, Well, his parents are ghosts. They're they're dead. Like, Uh, this is... And mm -hmm. the movie has that... If, if it, uh, and uh, I feel like it was stronger if it had left that kind of abstract. If, mm. You know, we, we were still a little bit. If he, well, he like he could have been imagining it, like this is well, how he wished he had things had gone with his parents. Again, like it's not. It doesn't matter if it's real. Mm. Ghost stories are all about mm. dealing with things in the past. Yeah, whether they really happen or in your head are irrelevant. That's what a mm. ghost story is. You're dealing with something that is dead, something that it can't, mm. but still you can't move past. Yeah, because it's there. It's in the house. It's in your head. So regardless of whether it's literal or not, it is a story that I think fits that kind of very sad mold about engaging with the supernatural. This isn't a fun Beetlejuice type ghost story. This is, again, it's a ghost story where if you want to think that none of it's real, that that actually is a perfectly rational interpretation of the film. I don't think the film actually does 
100% clarify that. Uh, but I think regardless, its tone it is there is a maudlin element. There's a melancholy to it. And I don't know. I, I, I see your point about it kind of like ending with like a button, like just kind of tidying things up. Yeah. But too, for me... Too, too tidy for me. Uh, for me, I think it, it, it ends it, it on it, a kind it, of a... Uh, um, I don't know. I, I think the ending brings it like a certain amount of mm. tragic inevitability. Um, so, I don't know. It worked for me. It worked okay. for me. We, uh, with yeah, it, we can't... Without I, I don't explaining think, exactly what happened, it's hard to... Yeah, talk about. I, I don't think it undid the whole movie. Like, yeah. it, it doesn't... Um, make any of the drama that came before beforehand like irrelevant which sure. I've, I've seen that happen before like you, oh, yeah. you give a bad ending and it kind of undoes all of the the good parts that you had getting there yeah um i still like all those those good parts yeah um i i, I just don't like the way they thought to end the story i feel like they didn't have an ending mm. and they kind of rushed something uh i disagree and, and but i, I feel like point. if they had left it ending less like if mm. just this is the way I imagined things with my parents and I'm going to leave it up to you to figure out what was going on here. Mm. That I think would have been a lot stronger. Yeah. But I, again, like, I still think you could argue that that's mm. the case. I don't mm. think it's entirely literal. All right. I really don't. Um, but again, hard to have that mm. conversation. Sorry about that. Um, all right. So you, you're up next. I guess I am. Um, I'm going to talk about May, December. Oh, it made my runners up. I like that movie okay. a lot. Yeah. Uh, May, December is the latest Todd Haynes film. Uh, it is a fictionalized version of the Mary Kay Letourneau scandal. Yeah. Uh, she was a teacher who uh, targeted and slept with one of her students who was 12. Yeah. Uh, she was 34 and uh, she it, went to prison yeah. for assaulting a seventh grader. Yeah. Uh, and when she got uh, out of prison. And, and when she got out of prison, uh, well, she had this child's child. Yeah. In prison, got out of prison, uh, briefly, was impregnated again, went back into prison, had another child. They have two daughters together. Mm -hmm. uh, this is Mary Kay Letourneau. Yeah. Uh, got out and they got married. Yeah. Until she died. And they stayed married until she oh, died. Oh, I didn't realize she died. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. That's not, well, I, I that's guess not they, relevant in the movie. They, they were married for a long time. I think they broke up and then she died shortly thereafter. Yeah, I really didn't keep track of yeah. how that story um, progressed over the years. But yeah. the, this is not uh, that that person. It's, no, it's like not a, a biopic. It's a fictionalized version yeah. of that. Yeah, it, it uh, takes inspiration from it. Where, yeah, uh, uh, Julianne Moore plays the Mary, Le, uh, Mary Letourneau character. Mm. And she's still married to her victim yeah who is now 35 played by charles melton amazing and, he, performance. and he's great he he has uh, to like keep up with two of the like julian yeah. moore is one of the best actors generation mm. and natalie portman's pretty fucking yeah. great too and they're both acting their heads off and charles melton who you might have seen him on tv but he's not yeah, like he's, he's a riverdale yeah, yeah but like you, you 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 don't like hear his name like spoken of in hushed tones mm. uh you will after this movie <laughs> he's astounding yeah. and he almost steals the movie he's mm. just amazing uh and it, you can tell that the the main character the julianne moore character is named gracie yeah uh you can tell that neither she nor her victim yeah. have ever really 
considered what has happened. Yeah. They've they're, raised children. Their children are graduating high school. Yeah, they're so used to defending themselves yeah. that they've never really and, uh, dealt with the fact that maybe it's indefensible. And yeah, she she has always spoken of the, her crimes in terms of romance. Mm. Like, uh, and, and, and he has as well. It's like, oh, I was special. I wanted all of that. Oh, this is, he was different. I, we fell in love. It was just, you know, society was against us. And, you know, they're not really contending with what happened. Yeah. Uh, into their lives comes the Natalie Portman character, mm-hmm. who is a famous actress named Elizabeth, who is going to be playing the Julianne Moore character, Gracie, in a fictionalized film. Yeah. So she's moved in with Gracie and is now studying her mannerisms and asking people about her life, trying to get a char- a movie character out of it. Yeah. Uh, so there's this extra layer of how we use these real-life tragedies and these real-life crimes as fodder for sens- sensationalized entertainment. Yeah. And this is a movie about the making of that entertainment and how those kinds of entertainments aren't ever used to really interrogate the depths of the crime. We're only interested in the salacious details. Yeah, and and Natalie Portman's character is kind of committed to not being judgmental, Mm. and that leads to this very subtle, very creepy kind Mm. of, like, moral corruption in her as well as the the, sort of the lines between her and Gracie kind of bleed. There's, like, a persona element a little bit over the course of the film. There's a scene where they're trying on uh, Gracie's makeup that a lot of people have compared to Ingmar Bergman's persona. It's and it's, great. And it's apt. Um, yeah, yeah. Todd Haynes can do big. Mm-hmm. He can do melodramatic. He did a really wonderful Douglas Sirk riff in the early 2000s called Far From Heaven, also with Julianne Moore. I think he's made like seven movies with Julianne Moore. Yeah. Um, she was in I'm Not There. Like, she wasn't one of the Bob Dylans, but she's in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he's also done uh, like really color, big, energetic, colorful films like Velvet Goldmine. Uh his two most recent films have been incredibly downbeat and pulled back and have really kind of been brave enough to dig their fingernails into the actual subject matter. Yeah. Maybe Carol notwithstanding. That's a little bit more of like a Christmas picture. But uh, <laughs> You make it sound like a Hallmark movie. It practically is. <laughs> it, uh, it's got a lot of Christmas iconography, it's, but um, it's actually really, really dour. I think the difference is that Carol takes place at a time where the queerness inherent to the story... Mm. It's still not something anyone can speak about publicly, so there, it's not as confrontational, scene to scene, moment to moment, mm. as May December might be. There's a lot of stuff that it goes I, unsaid, I but it's still abundantly clear. Yeah, I, so it's the tone is very different. The, the style of acting it, is very. It's different. a little odd though, because however terse Carol is, and however dour the film is, people still watch it as like a cozy picture because there's a lot of yeah. sweaters and hats, and you know, it's, I, I don't, uh, I don't think it's the aesthetics that I think people are zeroing in on, not the subject matter. Who, who, who uh, directed that? I think it was uh, Patricia. Uh, who wrote this book again? It was Patricia um, Highsmith. Yes. I, I can't imagine Patricia Highsmith being okay with that. No, probably like, not. She wrote the most bleakest amoral mm. thrillers. Like, mm. but she wrote a book, I think what it's called, like, Tales, Little Tales of Misogyny. <laughs> like, just mm. <laughs> wrote horrible things about the human condition. Yeah, so the, the, this, this is a film that features three of the best performances I've seen this year. Yeah. Um, I It took me a long time, uh, and it took Natalie Portman a long time, I think, to really mature as an actress. Mm. She's here. I mean, she's Mm -hmm. she's arrived. Um, For a while, she only only excelled in certain kinds of roles. Now I think Mm. she's really... She's very selective now. And Mm -hmm. I think, like, the last decade or so, there have been a few... eh, That wasn't great, but, like, even in movies that I'm not a huge fan of, like Black Swan, she's deeply Mm. committed to it. She's fantastic in Jackie. Like, I, I do think that she's 
being selective with the rules and she's picking something that in this case it's very challenging mm-hmm. for anybody not not just for Natalie Portman yeah, the, uh, but just like this is a very complicated role and she, they all and, are. She, and she did yeah she yeah. produces her films now she's a producer on this one too uh I, I heard the story was that she found the script mm. uh, and she said, I think Todd Haynes should direct this. Mm. Uh, and you know that she's like, Todd Haynes should direct this and I'll get Julianne Moore too. Like, cause they work <laughs> together so much. And from what I understand, uh, that's what happened. Like she yeah. gave the script to Todd Haynes and Todd Haynes is like, oh, I'm going to show this to Julianne Moore right away. And they, they kind of like consorted together. Yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do this together. Natalie Portman doesn't know, but yeah, this is kind of our project. <laughs> and, and they say, yeah, we're got it. And I got Natalie Portman and I like, or I got Julianne Moore. I, I like to think that Natalie Portman's like, <laughs> yeah, like she manipulated all that. That sounds kind of fun. There's no Academy Award that is specifically called Best Producer. Well, that's what Best Picture is, well, Best Production. It's, yeah. it, the, the Academy for Best Picture goes to the producer. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. If, if it was an award just for the picture, everyone who worked on it would get an Oscar, right? No. It's secretly an award for Best Producer. Mm-hmm. If we actually called it Best Producer... That kind of shit would get my vote. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's that's some cunning shit right there. Good mm. job, Natalie. You did great. So yeah, it, it's yeah. it's a really harrowing story. Uh, I think it does really directly confront a lot mm. of the more difficult elements of this scandal, yeah. and these crimes that that happened uh, through these yeah. really excellent performances. So yeah, I really loved May December. Uh, I, I love the two. It didn't quite make my top ten, but it's excellent. Right. And again, this is just that good a year. Um, and another day it might make my 10. It's that good. Um, uh, I have a film as well that is about uh, scandal. It's about mm-hmm. uh, digging into uh, sort of the darkness in a relationship in a very public way. Uh, but it's also a mystery thriller. It is Anatomy of a Fall. I didn't see Anatomy oh, of a Fall. Oh, bums me out. I think you yeah, like know. it. Um, just, so, just one of the many that yeah. I just didn't get around to. I saw so many and that's just too many. Uh, too many good ones. Um, Sandra Hewler, who's having a great year uh, between a starring role in this and arguably a supporting role in The Zone of Interest, mm. arguably a lead, but whatever, who cares? Um, two incredibly different, incredibly exciting roles. In Anatomy of a Fall, it, uh, she plays an author who is having a very strained relationship with her husband. They have a son, their son is legally blind. Uh, and they're really struggling to make ends meet. They like bought a house and they're like, we're going to turn it into a bed and breakfast, but they took a lot more repairs than they thought. So they're like just digging themselves even deeper into a hole. And he has to do all the repairs himself to save money. And she's like trying to give an interview about her latest book, which doesn't make her that much money. And he's jealous because he wanted to be a writer and he is mad about her success. And he's like playing music extra loud just to fuck with her. And, Finally, uh, the the interviewer leaves, and she goes into the house, and their son goes out for a walk with the dog, and when his son comes back, uh, dad is dead outside the house. Oh. And they call the police, and the police uh, investigate, and here's the thing. They can't tell if he fell from a window Mm. Or if he was pushed. Okay. The way that he fell is odd and unusual. And while it's not outside the realm of possibility mm-hmm. that he fell or even threw himself over on purpose, it's very possible that he was murdered. <laughs> and the only person who could have done it is his wife. All right. So she's just famous enough <laughs> that this becomes really public. Mm. And now they are in court and the court is interrogating 
The facts are vague. Mm. So the court is mostly interrogating their relationship to see if she has a motive. And they start picking away at every single little interaction that they've ever had. Okay. And the audience doesn't know. Possibly throughout the whole movie, maybe they reveal it, maybe it's clear or unclear. It's not like we know she didn't do it or that she did. We're trying to piece it together as well. And Mm. so is her son, who doesn't know what to make of any of this. And as we peel back every single layer, we realize um, any relationship goes on long enough. If you cherry pick the bad stuff, it's gonna look like a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> like you're, you're gonna be able to find something that makes you look terrible and yeah, looks like you, yeah. could, you could kill somebody. Uh, or it could make it look fine. <laughs> it's just the, the, the it, it, it takes the idea. What is a, a mystery really? You know, we call them whodunits, but they're not usually. What they really are is why done it, because mm. you're not just saying, "Oh, Dave did it." Yeah, that's not satisfying. You want to know why Dave the, did the, it. You the want motive to know what, is what, important. Yeah, yeah what, what what led him to kill the guy that way? You know, the whole point of a murder mystery is to investigate what drove people to that extreme, and whether this is a murder mystery or not, they're trying to investigate the extremity of that relationship. Yeah. So on one hand, it's a great legal thriller. It's weird as an American to watch it because the French legal system, uh, in terms of like how they actually handle courtroom interrogations, very different. <laughs> like if you saw St. Omer, like it's a very, di- St. Omer is great. By the way. I, I, yeah. Like I can appreciate it, but like, it took me so long just to wrap my head around, Oh, that is not the way every single courtroom <laughs> scene I've ever seen in a movie goes. And it's just their system. Because we're American. Yeah, I get it. It's a different system. But it took me a while to get past it. I think in this one, uh, because it's a little, it plays a little bit more like, uh, almost like an airplane novel. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's easier to get into those scenes and not like get distracted by the differences, the cultural differences. Uh, then again, if you just know what it's like in France, it's not going to bother you at all. But like, um, it's really, really harrowing. It is incredibly well acted, and it's really, really smart. Like, it's a really, really great, um, intelligent mystery. Not clever, intelligent. Okay. And I think I, some people have compared it to kind of like a Law and Order episode. It's just like, oh, and then we go through the courtroom, right? Mm. Yeah, it's like the best one ever. <laughs> like, it's just a really in depth, excellent one. And I'm not saying it's the only great story of its kind ever told, but this is a fantastically told one. And it has stuck with me, okay. like, for months since I've seen it. So uh, I love it to pieces. I think it's fantastic. And I think it is a, an excellent. Uh, just an excellent fucking film. <laughs> great. Yeah. Great, great. Uh, what do you got next? Uh, do I have a legal thriller that I can kind I of doubt it. We don't have a lot of them No, anymore. I do not. Um, you know what? You said Sandra Huller. I'm going to do Sandra Huller. That's not of interest. <laughs> I, um, I was waiting for that just because yeah. it seemed like that's something that plausibly could have been your number one. So uh, I was like, I was going to wait a little while. It's near there. but yeah, yeah it's, it's on my list as well. Like I said, a lot of these could be my number one. I'm not going to start yeah. you know parsing it all out. Uh, Zone of Interest is... Uh, wonderful film about the banality of evil um and the most horrendous evil in history uh i think there was a joke for a long time yeah uh among film critics and among audiences as well that if you want an oscar you Mm -hmm. just make a movie about world war ii yeah that was that uh, was there was literally a joke in the show extras where uh, kate winslet had who had famously been nominated for an oscar a bunch of times and never won and in like one of the episodes she played herself uh, she was in a World War II movie, 
And they're like, oh, why are you making this movie? Because I won an Oscar. They give you World Oscars World for War World II movies. movies. Kate Winslet yeah. ended up winning an Oscar for World, for World War II, II movies. Movie. So uh, that and, was funny. And, and a lot of a lot of the uh, punditry surrounding these movies was, ah, do we have to keep on interrogating World War II? Fucking yes, we do. Apparently, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, as as I mentioned before, we, we used to fight fascists. Now we vote for them here in America. Yeah. Um, uh, this is about a, a beatific home with a nice garden and access to a river, and it shares a wall with Auschwitz. Uh, it's about the the Nazi general who lives there and his family. And he runs the and, camp. And he, and he runs the camp, and it's all about pr- his career yeah. and his running the camp and how that good how good that is for his career and how nice this home is, how nice their uh, uh, little pool is. Yeah. They have a slide. Like, they, they feel like they're living the dream. Mm. That's like, we've got a nice house, and we're and, well and taken guy, care of, and we're making enough money, we can get a boat for your birthday. Like, everything's yeah, going great for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jesus. Uh, this was filmed by Jonathan Glazer, who does some very um, heady, contemplative movies. Uh, you know, very... Uh, um, uh, distanced in a mm. lot of ways. And I, I like his movies a lot. He did a film called Birth, which is a you know, creepy reincarnation story. He did Under the Skin, mm. uh, which is about a, you know, a, a space alien drama about Scarlett Johansson, the actress, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, this one's about wor- World War II and how it's not that they're like turning a blind eye to the evil. It's that for them, this is just their job. This isn't even evil for them. This is just kind of the, the way they go about it. And a lot of the horror that's going on in the camp, uh, it, we only get through sound. And the sound there's is constant. The, yeah. Like it's there's, always there's, there's there. There's this billowing, burning sound. Uh, there's a meeting early in the movie between uh, the main character and like his other Nazi general buddies. Like, like engineers. About, yeah, who, yeah. Who are like trying to find the best way to execute the most people. And they're mm-hmm. just doing, thinking about it efficiently. Uh, there is some other depravities, some twists as what's going on in the household. Uh, mom comes to visit at one point and reacts to the horrors in a way that is completely unexpected. Uh, but, uh, Jonathan Glazer keeps the camera back. Yeah. This isn't about... Very Kubrickian in yeah, its presentation. Like, like it's yeah. about sort of the interiors and the details and the sounds, uh, and how ordinary, how these, this historical evil was just considered ordinary life for a long time. Uh, And that's all completely horrifying. Mm -hmm. There's a scene near the end where uh, they actually do leave the house and we get to see the characters sort of outside the house and what they really think when they go out into public, Mm -hmm. which is very chilling. And it has maybe the best possible ending to this story. I was worried when I was watching this movie (laughs) because there's no arc you know, it's not like we introduce an inciting incident. Like the the most close thing we have to inciting incident is he might get transferred, mm. which is barely a sitcom plot. Yeah, like that's not a lot of incident. The whole point is to just sort of live with these people and to see just how oblivious they are to what's going on literally next door, uh, and, and not oblivious actually, but um, very cognizant. No, cognizant place. and completely apathetic. Actually, mm. is a better way to put it. Sorry. Um, and I'm watching this, and I'm like. Where do you stop this story? Because it doesn't feel like we're going to come to an organic conclusion with like a problem that gets solved. Like, do like American soldiers come in and uh, how do we end this? And yeah, without saying anything about how it ends, uh, 
great fucking ending. <laughs> they really, boy, did mm. they find a great moment. Yeah, yeah. And, and I feel like um, what what the filmmakers were getting at was, uh, it's essentially about the sanitization of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, cleanliness is a theme in this movie, like yeah. cleanliness versus sort of the, the filth of evil. And uh, how cleanliness in one case is used to... Um, sanitize and push the evil away and in another case is used to highlight it yeah um yeah it's it's really beautiful it's really such wonderful imagery and um yeah uh this is this is one i feel like should be shown in classrooms yeah like there's no there's some things that aren't like necessarily appropriate for kids it's yeah subject matter however i think needs to be seen it's really it's really bleak and that's something that needs to be expressed there's Mm -hmm. no what you might conventionally call entertainment value here. Uh, but mm. it's hypnotic. Uh, and, you know, again, you could be cynical and just say, like, I get it, the banality mm. of evil. Mm. Um, this is not a movie that exists in a vacuum. You know, you don't make a movie like this because it's safely tucked away in history. Mm. If it was safe, we wouldn't have to engage with it this way. Yeah. Uh, this is a movie about people going on with their lives while a genocide is going on. Mm. I'm going to have a bit of a pause right there. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So it forces you to reckon with that. And, you know, that's a long, difficult, complicated mm. conversation. And I think it's that kind of challenge that more art should do. Hmm. More art should be able to look the audience in the eye yeah, I, and, and just say, hey, fuck is wrong with you? I, I wanted to uh, add, sort of as an adjunct to the zone of interest, hmm. another film about the horrors of World War II that I actually just saw last week, um, uh-huh. uh, which I think would be a really good double feature with zone of interest. It's Steve McQueen's... Uh, occupied city oh it's, i didn't uh, see that yeah, it's, it's, a, it's like a five-hour documentary it's, it's yeah it's a four and a half hour documentary yeah. film about amsterdam and uh steve mcqueen films modern day amsterdam and finds like addresses and buildings and has uh a narrator tell you what happened on that spot in world war ii it's essentially like a plaque like a walking plaque on right. this spot this happened and where uh, some people were hiding, where some people were uh, you know, executed, where you know, camps were, well, not camps, they weren't yeah. in uh, uh, the city, know, yeah. where like, soldiers were like yeah. stationed, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, even finds like individual stories and citizens that lived in Amsterdam at the time. Uh, and that one is actually looking at the same sort of thing, how history has sort of been sanitized by being pushed into the landscape yeah. and how a lot of the old landscape, something they say all throughout that movie is this, this is where this horrible thing happened. The building's demolished. Yeah. This is a new building. And, yeah. and, uh, and of course the, the modern context is he filmed it during lockdown. So there's like a lot of uh, protests out in the street. There's some really creepy police presence there. And, yeah. you know, we're talking about the fascism that was actually in the city. Uh, I think if we're, we really need to keep on, telling these stories and we really need to keep on looking at world war ii and the horrors therein because mm-hmm. we're not ever too far off yeah we need to remind people how relevant it mm. is and how yeah you're right how close we are mm. and that's 
arguably in some ways were there Mm. and that's genuinely terrifying um i i will say this on a on a more uh technical note uh about the zone of interest and and really it's, it's also putting the year in context is it just me, or were there a lot of really great endings to movies this year? Like, really? <laughs> just a, put a great button on it, a great final line. Like, even Oppenheimer, a film that I didn't love as much as everyone else did. Mm. What an ending. What a great line that that movie ends on. You know? Like, it just it really just pits you with a punch. Um, there's a great sci-fi movie that made my runners-up called No One Will Save You. That's on my runners-up as well. Yeah, really, really awesome, mostly silent sci-fi film about a girl who's ostracized in her community. And so when aliens invade, she's all on her own. Mm. And that movie is really freaky and really, really scary and really impeccably crafted. And I did not see where the ending was going. <laughs> and the ending is great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what Boy, did that stick with me. Mm. So, yeah, just been a really good year for that. Uh, did you also have... The zone of interest on your list. I did. Oh, okay. I did. I did. So uh, you you oh. get you get to go again. You oh, jerk! Boy, what's um, happening? Uh, I have a lot of just like hefty, scary, sad movies. Mm. Um, you know what? I do have one, and uh, th- there's a there's movies I wait for. Mm-hmm. I wait for filmmakers to come along to really just blow me away. Uh, I, I want voices who that are really unique. Yeah. Uh, I want voices that are uh, have unusual ideas. I want something that uh, feels like it's coming from somebody who's genuinely weird. Yeah, not somebody who's trying to do something weird, but someone who something is from a weird, weird person. Yeah, we're, it's not an affectation. Yeah, this is just me being genuine. Um, what did you do? Eddie Alcazar made a film called Divinity. Oh yeah, yeah I think uh, you mentioned. And I wait for movies like Divinity. This is. Uh, the kind of movie that you feel like you discover maybe on cable in the middle of the night when you're a kid, or uh, if you're our age, when you went to the cult section in the video store, oh, you found I miss the cult section. You found this uh, like really old, dusty video cassette that hasn't ever been touched, and you take it home. It's like, <laughs> what, the, what the fuck is this? And like, you're blown away by something like Eraserhead. Um, that's how I discovered Eraserhead. It's like yeah. this little cult. What is this weird movie? This, and this was before the internet, so it's yeah. like, I, I had no way of getting information other than looking at the box. I, I, I uh, first uh, encountered Eraserhead by uh, people speaking of it in hushed tones and all things in gym class. <laughs> like, you're all just like... movie's called Eraserhead, man. Yeah, like, it's the weirdest fucking thing. It's like living in a nightmare. Mm. It's so wild. You have to see it. And I'm like, oh, okay. Mm. I'm so glad we're not shooting hoops right now. I <laughs> 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 hated uh, it so much. <laughs> But yeah, uh, uh, last year there was a really wonderful movie from Phil Tippett uh, called Mad yeah. God. Uh, if you've ever wanted a, a tool video to be a movie. Yeah, that's, uh, but, that's it in a nutshell. And, yeah. and, the, and there's also the advantages of not necessarily having to listen to tool. Um, oh, I boo. kid, I kid, tool. There's there, there's no music. In, there's like some music in the movie. Uh, Divinity takes place in uh, a very bizarre future where a mad scientist played by Scott Bakula, mm. has developed, like, essentially an, an immortality serum that also turns you into, like, an Adonis. And mm. it's run by his son, who's played by Stephen Dorff now. And uh, Scott Bakula only has, like, one or two scenes in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and this is being countered uh, by some sort of resistance group of uh, women who are trying to save other women. That's run by Bella Thorne. Bella Thorne has a scene in the movie. Mm. Uh, and it's about these two aliens 
who may be aliens and they're twins, maybe, are break into the Steven Dorff character's house and kidnap him and force Hitlam to overdose on his own divinity drug. Okay. And over, so over the course of the movie, they're like sort of feeding him these drugs and they're saying, you're, you're ruining the world with these horrible drugs and look, look out in the landscape and everything's black and white and terrible. It's like alkali flat landscape outside. Yeah. And so over the course of the movie, he's very slowly essentially turning into the Hulk. <laughs> he's just getting bigger and weirder and more aggressive as the, as the movie goes on. There's all this weird imagery, like fetishization of like the male physique in this movie. Meanwhile... A sex worker has come that the Steven Dorff character has hired, who doesn't know he's been kidnapped. And she comes in and sees these guys and says, you know what? You seem really alien to me. You're really weird. I'm going to teach you as a teacher what it is to feel pleasure. We're going to go out to a mm. club. We're going to listen to music. We're going to drink. We're going to have sex. And they are changed by their experience for the better. By their uh, their interactions with the sex worker. Okay. So they're becoming like a little bit more human and hedonistic through uh, drinking and sex. Meanwhile, Steven Dorff is becoming the Hulk. The movie ends with a stop motion monster fight. Fuck yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's, so it's a Whitney it's, movie. You know what? I, I, that's I've, not. I've said that's, before, that's neutral. I've, I've said it before. I respond to what I respond to, and uh, and I responded saying. very dramatically to Divinity. Yeah. It was it's just so. It's like shot it shot in that kind of really grainy black and white. They're clearly using film, right? Uh, and so it has a lot of texture to it. it has a lot of heft to it. Uh, they're really trying to create. Uh, striking unusual images and that I can always appreciate that. I, I want to make it clear that when mm. I call something a Whitney movie, mm. I am not being dismissive. Okay. I'm not being dismissive. I'm not being condescending. Mm. I am codifying a genre. <laughs> okay? Like, I just want to be like, when we could say a Whitney movie, mm. it's like, this is too weird for most people. But for everyone else, it's everything you've been looking for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, you know, like you, you it's like, um, like you've, uh, you've been shooting movies so much that you know something regular weird just gets you to normal. Hmm. So you need a divinity in order to feel the rush of loving <laughs> yeah, movies I mean, again. You, you know, need something stronger than than what you ordinarily get. Yeah, um, I, I've heard it said before, and I wholly object to this notion. Yeah, uh, that the best movies in the world should have. A broad appeal. Oh, they yeah, should no. they should appeal to a, a, the largest number of people, and a lot of people say, "Well, if if a great number of people enjoy it, and it's really famous, mm -hmm. and it reaches a lot of people, and they all respond very positively in the same way, that's a surefire sign that that is just an undeniably great movie." Objectively, yep. first of all, no, no, no. that's not a thing. Uh, secondly, no. Fifthly, no. Um, <laughs> I will say this. What I think you can say in those situations, mm -hmm. when a movie is incredibly popular, people are seeing it over and over again, it's in, it, at least... And the thing is, we like to think that, like, oh, this movie was so popular, uh, it, it will be an, a, a classic. Mm. Um, when was the last time you watched Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? <laughs> that was, like, the highest grossing movie of that year. Oh, yeah. It's not... I mean, people kind of like it, but it's not considered like a timeless classic now. Well, and it's still a fun movie if you go yeah. back and see it. But it's like, not a bad film. If you go back in time and you look at like the highest grossing movies of the year, like you you go you start going back a few more decades and you realize I don't recognize some of these movies anymore. Mm -hmm. And that kind of popularity can fade real fast. The zeitgeist doesn't last forever. Mm -hmm. So 
popularity in your time is no sign of greatness, but I do believe it's a sign that you're connecting on some level. Mm. I do think that there's 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 well, something to be explored there. There's something we need to take seriously about that, mm-hmm. whether or not we're critical. What what, what is yeah. what is it that it that a large number of people are digging into about yeah. this thing? It, it certainly it's a film of mm. the moment, and um, I actually have two relatively mainstream films on my list. Okay. I might as well just get to them now because that's mm. I was worried about not having a segue, and you just gave me one. Right. Um, I, I I think it's pretty rare. For me to have the highest grossing movie of the year on my top ten list. <laughs> but in this case, I, I'm actually really happy okay. that Barbie is the highest grossing movie of the year. All right. If 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 we must have a highest grossing movie of the year, <laughs> this is an interesting choice. Yeah. Because on on some respects, this has a lot of mass appeal. It is a comedy. It's got an all-star cast. It's based it's on ba- a very recognizable toy product. It's based on yeah. toy for crying out loud. Um, and it is, let's be fair, it is a commercial for Barbie. Mm-hmm. You, you can't escape that, and the movie admits that. But it doesn't stop there, and a lot of movies do. Most movies based on a brand or a product or an IP are just about regurgitating it. Maybe we're doing it really well. But when you make, even when you make like a movie, like, I don't know, a really good movie, like Logan... Yeah. You're just telling a Wolverine story really, really well. And mm-hmm. that can be really powerful. That can be really, really impactful. But what I think the genius of what Greta Gerwig did was she didn't tell a story about Barbie the character alone. Mm-hmm. She told a story about Barbie the concept. What does Barbie represent? What mm-hmm. does it represent to the company? What does it represent to a group of people? What does it represent to what people the... in the next generation mm-hmm. after that? What does it represent to people who don't look like Barbie? And through that, she created a film that is broadly funny, but extremely perceptive, uh, and ultimately uh, actively engages with themes that are way more complicated than we're used to in mainstream cinema. Now, if you're viewing this through the lens of, I want this to be the most feminist movie ever made, mm. it's going to look a little baseline. It's going to look a little well, College 101 class. But it, it, It's rated PG-13. I don't understand why. I guess there's mm. some naughty-ish references. But, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's a bit of a stretch, I think. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, it, it's it's clearly made for uh, an, an audience of teenagers. Yeah, who, younger who are, people. Or maybe encountering these concepts for the first time, and, and that I can appreciate. Yeah, exactly. Like, it, it is explicit and indeed didactic mm-hmm. about issues involving feminism, and as the plot progresses and Ken becomes corrupted by the real world, which, mm-hmm. unlike Barbie world, is unfairly uh, skewed towards masculinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also very didactic about toxic masculinity and this is a great example of a movie that breaks what a lot of people consider to be a hard and fast rule about storytelling which is you should show not tell <laughs> and well and that, that's always been nonsense it's, it's always it's it's, it's, it's we taught like it's a rule people it's, act it's, like it's, it's a rule it's advice well it's it's a good rule to follow for a first year film student yeah it's always being it's encouraged to, yeah. to think of a film visually if all you think of to like write your movie is people just explaining stuff mm-hmm. you're probably not engaging with your full creativity and we want to come yeah. up with ways to tell a story visually and god knows barbie does that but there are moments and if you're a smart storyteller who has something to actually express where being direct provided you can do so skillfully, 
is vital and I I watch this movie with an audience and it can feel cathartic mm-hmm. to have it actually just said out loud. Let's just say the quiet part loud. Mm-hmm. Let's say the loud part loud. <laughs> like let's actually like deal with the shit. And this is another example of a movie that doesn't have to be everything. This can be someone's introduction to that. But, but she is everything. She is everything. But, <laughs> it, fair enough. But regardless, the movie doesn't have to be. Yeah. And the movie can be an introduction to big ideas for younger people. And I think that's really, really exciting. But on top of that, what a wonderful cast. The music is fantastic. Mm. The performances are really, really funny. It's, it engages it's in some of the, yeah. it, a lot of the weirder elements of Barbie that... Like the, the Barbie that had a TV in her back? Why? <laughs> Why did we do that? Who 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 sold uh, that idea? I liked Barbie a lot. Uh, yeah. Barbie's not on my list. Uh, yeah. Barbie's actually not even a runner-up of mine. Um, the film that Barbie reminded me the most of was actually the Brady Bunch movie from yeah. uh, 1995, which did, did similar things. Um or uh, I guess it's a little closer to something like Pleasantville, mm, where, it yeah. lo- where it looks at something really kind of square and cliched about Ameri- the thinness of American culture. Or Americana, and, specifically, yeah, the, and, this idea we have of and it. And tries to delve into what it was really trying to say and how we need to kind of outgrow that. Yeah. Uh, I-, I like all of those movies. I think yeah. they're all very, very... I like the Brady Bunch movie, I like mm. Pleasantville, and I like Barbie. Yeah. Uh, and none of them are subtle. <laughs> no, and yeah, not not for a second. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, 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 I, and I appreciate though. all of all of the things that they're saying and doing, mm-hmm. and I feel like uh, if Barbie becomes like a slumber party standard for the next decade, I would be pleased as punch. What a treat, right? Uh, what a high standard to set. And I love that a movie like this is the biggest hit of the year. That's yeah, great, uh, right? What a, I would I would be happy if, if this bombed. This would be on my top ten list, yeah. but it didn't, and mm. I think that's exciting. Mm. That a movie that is about ideas. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, it's also commercial. Let's be fair. Like, we can't pretend it's the, not. The commercial element is there, but they do at least land, they well, kind they, of call attention they to They use it, a it as a bit, delivery yeah. system for something actually meaningful mm. and not like layered under a whole bunch of bullshit so you don't have to engage with the actual themes of the movie if you just want to, quote, turn your brain off. You have to leave it on for Barbie. Mm. That's fucking great, and I hope that inspires more people to do that kind of challenging storytelling, even within a safe studio system, because of the safe movies can force people to actually like think about things mm. even if it's baseline i think we're in for a better world like if this <laughs> Fair, if yeah. this was the low standard that would be great but it's a high standard right mm. now and i think it deserves to be held up that way and i think it withstands that and i love that i think it's a great movie yeah. Well, you chose Barbie, I chose Oppenheimer. Uh, did you really? I did. Okay, fair um, enough. Yeah, Christopher Nolan did a biopic. And, and this is also exciting about what's going on in the world right now. Yeah. He made a three-hour biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer, considered the father of the atomic bomb, mm. and it's a hit. It, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the highest gross. It didn't crack a billion, but the, the fact it's, that it came close enough that I we have to say that it's, it's like is the, amazing. It's like the fifth highest grossing film of the year or something uh, like I'll that. I'll look it up because uh, yeah, it's astounding. That Oppenheimer is, yeah. is a hit. Uh, you know, Hey, remember when you took science class? Do you remember who Feynman was? Probably not, but he's in the movie. <laughs> and he's played by, I don't know, Josh Hartnett or something. Uh, I think it actually might have been Desiree. Right um, um, I forgot who played Feynman. It wasn't Josh Hartnett, though. Um, yeah. Uh, Josh Hartnett's in the movie. He plays a different character. Yeah. yeah look this at is... Studley, by the way. He, he wears Professor Webb. <laughs> I mean, of course, he, he's always been like handsome movie star. He never yeah. stopped being a handsome movie star. He's still a handsome movie star. It made $954.7 million. Oppenheimer. Yeah. Oppenheimer. And here's the thing. 
it's about how we're all fucking doomed. (laughs) (laughs) It's Uh, a long, complicated, difficult biopic about the doom of us all, and people flocked to it because it felt right. It it felt this was the time for it. Uh, (coughs) After after so many years of feeling like the world was coming to an end and that everything was really hopeless, here's a movie about how, yeah, it always kind of was that way um yeah. j Ro- robert oppenheimer uh, the, there's several stories going on the the main story is that it's about the the technical steps that were taken mm-hmm. about the invention of the atomic bomb yeah why it was why they felt it was needed we can make this thing yeah. this new kind of thing that can it, make bombs out of radiation and it's this mm-hmm. huge process is it even possible yeah, would uh, it destroy the let's, planet let's if gather the, the smartest scientists yeah. together to see if we can actually do this for them it's an intellectual exercise but they in their minds they're not really thinking of the implications of it they're just trying to put together this technical piece of machinery. Yeah. And the uh, idea are, is... Some of them are concerned about using it against Hitler yeah, because the, that's the, an I, active threat. Yeah, yeah, the idea is if we yeah. have this powerful weapon like that's so strong it can literally destroy the world, uh-huh. then that will put bring an end to war, right? Because no one would be mad enough to use it. That's the most... It's unbelievably <sighs> naive that people mm. who were mad enough to create an atomic bomb... Uh-huh think that no one would be mad enough to use it and it's it's not until they actually see the blast yeah that they realize oh what have we done yeah and uh that's about and you know as they go on it's like wait a minute we created these bombs and then the entire b story that actually takes up a lot of the movie yeah is about how uh, oppenheimer during some hearings humiliated a a politician played by robert downey jr giving one of his better performances frankly Mm -hmm. um in a long time, too, because he was coasting on the Marvel stuff for a yeah, long time. Yeah, he's barely made um, any non-Marvel movies mm. like the last ten years. Mm. It's like The Judge and Doolittle and, and, and a cameo and Chef. And Chef. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. He's good in Chef. He's a great actor. Yeah. I wish he acted more. He's terrible in Doolittle. That's just a well, terrible movie all No, told, no but... one's good in Doolittle. Yeah. Like, the best actors in the world are bad in Doolittle. But... Well, my favorite detail about Doolittle is, uh, uh, is there's a parrot named Polly. Yeah. and uh, But they spell it P-O-L-Y. Oh, for some reason, and weird. and on the big posters it says Emma Thompson is Polly. It's like, oh, well, good for her. How progressive! <laughs> Just three boyfriends, wonderful. Good for her. Go nice for it, done, Emma. Yeah. <laughs> Emma Thompson is Polly. But yeah, uh, there's 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 three storylines. One of them is about like many years after the fact when this politician is being vetted by Congress for like a secretary of something, uh-huh. uh, and his relationship with Oppenheimer is all they want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he has to explain it's, all of those. It's the, about like a, a security clearance renewal process. It's yeah. like the boring, it, most driest thing. Yeah, and, and, um, and there's also security. And there's also oh, the security clearance renewal process is Oppenheimer, mm-hmm. and this is Robert Downey Jr.'s like revenge against him. To not, not get it. and yeah, uh, is to have all of that revoked mm. and to have everything he's ever done uh, questioned, like all of these things that people v- revered you for for many years for stopping for ending World War II. We'll give him credit for that. Now it's just like, are you a piece of shit? Well, here's what's yeah. going on: is yeah. what they want to do is have them. They don't have like sort of the wherewithal or the morals to say. We all collaborated on the worst possible invention that humanity can invent. Yeah. And we're going to pillory you for that. Instead, it all 
boils down to the only language they know, which is thuddingly dull bureaucracy and ego and how the most destructive force on the planet is in the hands of these petty assholes Mm. who don't have the mind power to understand the scope of what they have in their hands. I think the the thing that I like most Mm. about it, and I like Oppenheimer a lot. It didn't make my top 10 and frankly didn't even make my runners up for a reason I'll explain in a minute. But the thing that I I really like best about this movie is I think this movie also makes a very reasonable argument that the most destructive force in the universe isn't the atomic bomb, it's male insecurity. Yeah, that, that's, like that's, that's a big part of it. That's e- it. Ego is the big part of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's we, that's we, the danger. We, egos. we wouldn't have done this if it wasn't for that. So, uh, one incredible cast, hmm. incre- impeccably put together. My, my problem with this movie, the thing that keeps it off of my list, hmm. it's got that, that three-layered storytelling there's the black and white sequence Robert Downey Jr there's the interrogation sequence and there's the proper Mm. biopic building the bomb sequence I genuinely don't think you need the Robert Downey Jr sequence I think that entire Mm. sequence feels extremely redundant and I think that you you get that whole story in the earlier bits I think that culminating it in a congressional hearing about an office of government that nobody gives a shit about mm. is weirdly undramatic and not and not in like an in, what, oh an interesting way, but in a history forced us to try to turn this into an ending kind of way. And yeah. there's like a little like last minute reveal that plays almost like a sequel tease, and that that made my whole theater <laughs> laugh. And I don't think that's what they were going for. Um, I, you say Robert Downey Jr. is good in this. I I don't disagree, but I don't think he's needed. I genuinely uh, I, I, think, I think that it is, doesn't though. really think, add to the film. I think, well, I think he is needed. I think those kind because it, it he's emblematic of the kinds of characters who are in charge of the atomic bomb, right? And I think that uh, the whole point of that is that the people who are in control of the atomic bomb aren't the people who invented it, or aren't people who are even considering the morality of it, or even the ones really saying adamantly out loud that yes, we should use it or no, we shouldn't. It's just about petty grievances in government. And it shows, Mm -hmm. I think in a very relevant, timely way that the most destructive things that come out of government are coming from egotistical idiots who are not considering anything. I don't disagree with any of that, but here's the thing. Mm. I think all of that comes across Mm. in the security clearance stuff with Jason Clark, because that's all directly tied into that. Mm. The actual Robert Downey Jr. scenes, Uh the ones that are in black and white, are all after that with him trying to vaguely justify it in a way that feels like just pure exposition mm-hmm. and then try to give the film some kind of triumphant comeuppance element at the end so mm-hmm. it's not just a complete downer. Yeah. And I find that very contrived and mm-hmm. I find that very unsatisfying. And it doesn't work. I, I think it's redundant. I think we get that elsewhere in the movie and I think you could have whatever elements of that are useful in terms of information could have easily been dovetailed into the other bits and it would have been a lot more tight a lot more potent so i just find this movie very fatty Mm. in a way that uh, is not really delicious it just feels like too much so but that's 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 a craft thing that's not like Mm. thematically it's exciting it's very well put together visually it's a screenplay thing for me and i think the script has as a big flaw in it for me all right i i I don't see that as a flaw i think it's actually Mm. you know well, you didn't like the ending uh, uh, of All of Us Strangers, so we'll call it even. Fair. That's yeah. fair. That's, yeah. that, and that's a screenwriting thing for me. Yeah, there you go. Right. Um, all right. I have, uh, I have another film that is a... It's a crowd pleaser. Okay. Uh, but it is a World War II movie. It's Godzilla Minus One. 
I could I could not put Godzilla minus one on here, and not just because we have a Godzilla podcast. Hmm. I put Godzilla minus one on here because this has been an interesting year for blockbuster filmmaking. Mm where so many of the things that we relied on for like the audience's interest have failed. Mm -hmm. They failed the studio. The studio, whether it's through their uh, laziness or taking for granted the audience's interest and not doing anything new to excite them, um, familiarity has bred a lot of contempt. Yeah. Godzilla, the longest continuously running franchise... In like, history, unless you count stuff like Dracula, yeah, absolutely. but like, but people, different people owned it. Like this is mm. like Toho <laughs> doing mm. it all. Um, somehow has managed to keep it fresh. <laughs> They've managed to find a very simple concept: nuclear energy makes monster. Monster attacks Tokyo. Tokyo fights back. That's it. <laughs> we might add another monster to that sometimes. We don't even need to. It's the same thing over and over again. But it's so pure as a metaphor mm. that as people progress, as society progresses, as attitudes progress, we can approach that exact same premise through very different lenses. And we can get mm. a similar movie that is entirely different. Uh, and, and just looking at the three Godzilla movies that take it deathly seriously... Gojira mm. is a very different film from Shin Godzilla. Uh-huh. Is a very different film from Godzilla Minus One. Yeah. And we talked about this when we reviewed it. The thing with Godzilla Minus One, the difference between, and again, I'm not counting like the silly ones, which are fun, mm. but the deathly serious ones, the ones that they just want to take it seriously, those first two are very dark. Uh-huh. They're very cynical about humanity and government and politics we, and we our Ill, ability to Ill, destroy ourselves. Ill-equipped Ill for disaster and destruction. Yeah. And in an environment like we have now, where we, it feels like the whole planet's been having an existential crisis for a few decades now, hmm. uh, literal and figurative, uh, to have a Godzilla movie that is not only hopeful but earns it mm. it's not hopeful in a superficial way it's hopeful in a way that like no there are characters in this movie who want to die yeah and well, what, it takes the, that the main, seriously the main character is a kamikaze pilot yeah like he, and he and he and he uh, giving his own life yeah giving his own life for his country has been his his that was his, his mission. mission that was his goal yeah. and at the beginning of the movie he doesn't do that he considers himself a coward for it even mm -hmm. though I think it's a very understandable position. Uh, and he is wrestling with that the entire time. And the attack of Godzilla right after World War II, as Japan is trying to rebuild itself after the bomb, plural, um, is an opportunity, not just... You'd think it would be like for redemption. That's the obvious Hollywood route. It might be the opportunity for him to die. Mm -hmm. And that's something that the movie doesn't like... It, it doesn't. It could go in a very like unpleasant, jingoistic kind of way hmm. it doesn't it's well uh, it's actually trying to engage with the actual horrors of the fact that there were kamikaze pilots mm -hmm. and then find a way to try to start healing those wounds that were in many respects in the movie admits self-inflicted on mm -hmm. a country and using godzilla as a means of 
almost salvation, it's even just, though it's, it's like, even it's, though it's terrible. It's like, like it's really it's, fascinating. It's, it's a, uh, Godzilla is used as sort of a catalyst for hope in this one. Yeah, um, it's it's incredibly mm, satisfying, mm. and in terms of like, it's got action and great scope it's, and gravitas, but it's a serious drama. Here's and the, it works as a drama. Here's the strange thing: I would describe Godzilla minus one as being very. Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of its uh, catalysts for hope and its kind of bold, uh, inspiring story making, you can make that argument. even more so than any of the actual Godzilla films that were made in, in Hollywood. I don't even disagree. Uh, you know, the Roland Emmerich was more like a he made it more like one of his disaster pictures because yeah. or, or his, like Independence Day, one of those big thrillers. Yeah, uh, the monster verse films are taking the Marvel route where they're trying yeah. to make these interconnected mytho- mythos of these monsters. Yeah. Kind of like they did in the Showa era back in the sixties and seventies. Mostly about um, how cool it is. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they don't have that old fashioned Hollywood chin to them. They're, they're just effects yeah. pictures. Yeah. Uh, Nothing. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, those are, those it's, it's are a style. Pictures, it's a yeah, style. That's just what yeah. they chose. This is the one that feels like old fat, like old fashioned Hollywood. Yeah. To me. Yeah, I agree. This is like the Cecil B. DeMille version, yeah. and that, that's and, a uh, great approach, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's something that they haven't really done much. I, 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 even I when they tried to do yeah. Hollywood stuff. I, I appreciate that. I also admit that's kind of what put me off about the film. I, you know, yeah, I get it. It's a little too mainstream for Whitney, and I can appreciate that. But. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like Godzilla Minus One a lot. I do recommend it, people see it, but it's not on my list. I, I don't object to mainstream. I think mm. there's a there's a tendency when you start getting into art house, grindhouse, esoteric mm. uh, cinema to like put away Hollywood filmmaking. Like it's like we're setting aside childish things as now mm. we are growing up. And well, great, I, great art can come from anywhere. I, that's it, my it can, point. And it can come from the mainstream as well. I think mainstream, uh, there is there is a certain it's import- power yeah. to that kind of filmmaking, that kind of mm. populist uh, um, manipulation, that when weaponized responsibly and satisfyingly, there's nothing like it. Uh, and I think Godzilla Minus One is a really impressive example of how blockbuster filmmaking can be intensely satisfying without feeling like escapist junk Mm. just a a way to waste your time and a way to tease a sequel Mm. like it's actually like no we're going to engage with these characters in the story and there's going to be a a heightened melodrama there's like a plot point later on which is right out of like a hollywood writer's room in the 1940s trying to come up with a a capra ripoff movie Mm. But by God, it works. <laughs> it actually works. It shouldn't. It should be kind of kind of a hack move. But it's so great because we've been through so much and we need it. We need it so bad. We need that to happen. That makes us. That makes our entire life. Ah, I love Godzilla minus one. I think it's impeccable. Um, all right, we got uh... Godzilla is more of like a guy in that movie. Like, looks more like a guy. A lot more expressive. Got big shoulders. Yeah. Angry, big, stumpy guy. Mm-hmm. See, Shin Godzilla, it's a thing. Yeah. Agreed. Godzilla minus one's a guy. I agree, which is funny because it actually doesn't have any personality in it. It's it's really... Mm. It, it doesn't seem to, like, react to things in a way. It is mm. a, a monster. It's a, just an animal with not even much going on mm. for an animal. I don't know. It, it, Godzilla is more representative here, where Shin Godzilla was more fascinated by its, I think, biology. Yeah, it's yeah. like almost a Cronenbergian entity. But um, anyway, we yeah. each got two left. What do you got? Um, uh, mine uh, it isn't a big epic. It's not a big uh, effects picture. In fact, it, it takes place in this house. It, <laughs> I, it, I picked that it, too. In this house. That's my that's, that's my last, uh, my last um, one as well. I'm talking about Skinner Rink. Same. Um, 
I can't think of the last time a film just fucking scared me. Right? Left me legitimately frightened. Not, not, an, and, you know, Oppenheimer left me frightened in an existential kind of a way. Sure. And, like, um, there, I'm sure you've had the occasional jump scare get under your skin. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Ah! And, you know, Bo is Afraid left me really kind of, like, itchy and nervous. Mm-hmm. Skinnamarink, like, gave me nightmares. Yeah. Because it's a nightmare. It yeah. was shot by um, a, a filmmaker Kyle named Edward Kyle Ball. Edward Ball, who uh, made it for uh, $15,000 Canadian. Uh, <laughs> Is that more or less? It's it's less than, I think it's like 11000 American. Okay. Um, shot it in his own childhood home. And it's and it's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it moves like a dream. And in fact, Kyle Edward Ball uh, got to start making YouTube videos. People mm-hmm. would describe their nightmares to him and he would make films out of them. Yeah. Uh, and so he's very adept at a certain kind of very real dream logic where things don't make sense, but you understand them. There's something in your subconscious that gets it. Uh, it takes place at a home. It's about two children. They're very young. They're six and four, I believe. Yeah. And... The doors and windows are vanishing. Yeah. They wake up in the middle of the night. Mm. There's a TV on and it's showing old cartoons. Old public domain cartoons. Yeah. yeah. And all the lights are off and there are no more windows and there are no more doors. And occasionally a voice tells them to do something. Mm. Go to go to your parents' room. Yeah. Look upstairs. Like, they, no, they don't go upstairs. They, they go into their parents' room and the parent is oh. awake. God, that we, whole sequence freaked we, me the we fuck don't, out. We don't know where your father is. And and mom's not facing you. You see yeah. just the back of mom's head. And you, and like, then you, you just don't hear, want her to turn towards and, you because you're yeah. afraid of what you're going to see. And, and, and then she just says, look under the bed. He's like, no, 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 no. There's, there's a, and it's it's shot in this really like super grainy, uh, like. I almost think like VHS. It, yeah, v, almost like eight millimeter. It's like, it's shot yeah. digitally, but it looks like eight or 16 yeah. millimeter There's film. a lot of visual um, noise in the darkness. It's not just like pure black. This is, it's one of the only films I've seen that uses like the actual grain of the film to hide its visuals. Yeah. Like there's something hiding in the film grain. Oh, that's Uh, so cool. And yeah, time starts to move differently. Uh, And yeah, when, when acts of violence begin happening, like actual scary stuff, it's like, there's not like there there might be a progressive story in here and people have looked into yeah. this film and found like a narrative throughout yeah. but that's not why the film is effective it's not the yeah. story that's hiding in there and also a lot it's, of that is kind of debatable you can look at it yeah. one way you can look at it another yeah. there's definitely events transpiring mm-hmm. but you're not it, it, it's like a dream though like mm-hmm. in a dream you're aware of stuff happening but it's not like it's clear and concise there's mm-hmm. things that you understand without it being told you like mm-hmm. you're you're your parents are in the house. You don't see them, yeah. but you understand what it feels like to know that they're there. Yeah. And that's something that skin and rink is so brilliant about doing is implying mm. to give you the a sensation without actually giving you a reason to trust it. Mm. That's so unnerving. <laughs> it's there's so a, fucking terrifying. And, and there's a moment where um, we're just sort of, and a lot of the film is just, we don't get to see the kids' faces up close too much. Yeah. Uh, they don't really have like a lot of dialogue. They have to whisper because yeah. it's the middle of the night. They're not even on screen uh, a lot of the yeah, time. We're just a lot, looking we're at, sort like, of like looking at yeah. the things in the room around them where we see their shadow pass by. Yeah. And there's a lot of shots of just looking down a hallway or looking at a wall looking from a, like a child's perspective. There's a scene where they're, the camera is just still. It's looking at an empty hallway and Kyle Edward Ball takes that hit like that white noise hiss mm-hmm. like the and just start and starts to increase the volume 
and I, I'm I, I watch this in the middle of the night, which is a big fucking mistake. Oh yeah, and, and I'm, yeah. I'm clutching watch the pillow. Watch it at night yeah. with the lights off, especially if you can watch it on a cathode ray television. <laughs> watch it, like sit up really close yeah. to it. It'll freak you the fuck. But yeah, out. I, I'm I'm like clutch. I'm already terrified. I'm clutching a pillow yeah. on my my chest, and as that noise got louder and louder, I actually said like out loud in full voice, "Stop it!" Like <laughs> like I really got that frightened. Um. Uh, it, 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 I mean, there, there's no other way to say it. It's the scariest movie of the year. Uh-huh. It's one of the scariest movies I've seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. And it uses uh, a lot of, almost like, if, if you were raised in sort of like a suburban home, it, mm-hmm. they almost feel like Jungian images well, the, it, uh, that it's, really it, kind of delve into parts of your unconscious that most horror films don't even have any interest in seeing. Well, there's a movement. There's a whole mm-hmm. cinematic movement that has been mm-hmm. going on online. Uh-huh. Uh, that is focused almost entirely on liminal spaces. It's called mm. the back rooms most of the time, and that's like a whole thing about... Um, they, they, they've created like a vague mythology around it, which I don't even think you need. Just the idea of, here's a space, we recognize the space, we know the space is supposed to be filled with people and things, but it's not. Mm. But it should be. <laughs> Why isn't it? It's like these videos where like people like investigate like abandoned hotels... Yeah, and it's like yeah. this should not. These are huge lived-in spaces with chairs and things, and there's no one here, and it just feels haunted. Even though there's nothing actually happening in it, <laughs> it can give you a panic attack just looking at still images. Mm-hmm. And Skin of Rink is one of the first films to actually capitalize on this in cinemas, and this was the first example to me of this year going in a weird direction, but in terms of box office. Because, again, this was the year where Americans would, really worldwide, would reject a lot of the baseline assumptive uh, blockbusters. And a movie like Skinamarink, made for $15,000 Canadian, could make $2 million at the box office. Now, that might not seem like a lot. This movie is borderline completely abstract. (laughs) And it still made $2 million. It drove conversation. Mm. In like, I think first week of February, last week of January when it came out. This was so exciting to people. Even people who didn't like it. People like, ah, it's barely a movie. They were interested enough to talk about it. Mm. They felt the need to see it. It is incredibly exciting when a movie like Skin and Rank not only exists and is amazing, but can attract attention yeah. for being this strange. I loved that about yeah. this year. I, I, I didn't see it, and the, the movie actually came out last year, but uh, something mm. similar happened with a movie called Terrifier 2, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. A, like a really long gore picture about a killer clown. He just kills um, people in incredibly elaborate, yeah, and, and, gross and, and, ways. And, and yeah. they're, just, they're just trying to push the envelope with gore in that, and, uh, it, yeah. and trying to make it as disturbing as possible. It's like you torture killer clown. Right? It's uncomplicated. Um, haven't seen it, can't co- comment on the quality, but I mm. love... That filmmakers got together, made a gore-soaked killer clown movie, mm-hmm. and it got some attention. Oh, People yeah. actually came to theaters to see that. So was, tastes were clearly was, changing. And it wasn't like released by like a mainstream studio mm-hmm. either. It was just literally just people said, you got to see this fucked up shit. Yeah. And then that was also like a big, let me say, how much did that make? That made like a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it, it was also made for very little, very yeah, it little. Made, it, made for two, it was made for $250,000 and it made $15.7 million, which again... Mm-hmm. Pretty damn good on that budget. That's a respectable mainstream release mm. for this kind of a movie, and that's exciting times. Mm. So I love that that's a thing. Um, 
So we're down to our number ones. We're down to our number ones, Whitney. What is mm. your what? If you had to pick, uh, what's your number one film? Of the year? Uh, it's it's um, maybe a daring thing to say, but I think Killers of the Flower Moon. Really? Might be one of Scorsese's best movies, which I is saying a lot. Didn't see that coming. I really yeah. didn't think you were going to single that as your number one. That's a cool pick. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon uh, is about, it uh, takes place in the 1920s uh, in the Osage Nation. And it is about, uh, the, it's the true story of um, mm. the man who essentially went into the Osage Nation, who had struck oil recently and became mm. incredibly wealthy, uh, and how he snuck in. And implemented a plan to siphon all the money into the pockets of white guys. Yep. Uh, Scorsese has been accused in the past of glorifying criminals. Yeah. Uh, I think that's maybe an unsophisticated take. You watch any of his films about criminals, you can see that they are all morally depraved or wanting in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's always a chunk at the beginning where mm -hmm. the criminal enjoys the freedom of criminality. Goodfellas, Casino, whatever. Wall Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you watch the whole movie, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you realize that's not the fucking point. The point is it's alluring, but there's a price to pay. It's it's a trip to hell. And and what I like about uh, Killers of the Flower Moon is uh, it delves into, even more so than something like The Irishman, how pathetic these guys are and it is about the killers it's not about Mm. the victims as much and i Mm. i think i've heard some people object to that they wish it was more about the osage character it's frustrating that the story had to be told Mm. i mean it didn't have to but it's frustrating that the only way people could consider for this story to be told to make it on this level Mm. was to tell it through the white perspective because they're they're villains and that's not like it's not an interesting story to tell Mm. It's just frustrating that that's the only version that's yeah. being told. And, and I, that's uh, a fair comment, I think. Mm-hmm. It's a fair critique. And, and I love, but I love that because Lily Gladstone, mm. excellent performance. She fucking amazing. Uh, in she, this movie. she says more with a look mm-hmm. than uh, Leonardo DiCaprio can with all that obnoxious improv- improvisation that he does. Um, <laughs> I've heard stories from the set how they just sort of let. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio goes like, oh, I'm gonna just improvise for this whole scene, and like Scorsese and De Niro are like, Let's just let him do his thing. We'll cut it later. <laughs> He'll get it out yeah. of the system. <laughs> I, I uh, actually do like his performance in this movie. I appreciate how absolutely pathetic mm. he lets himself be in this well, movie. I, There's nothing redeeming about him. Mm. There's nothing cool he, about him. There's nothing intelligent about him. He has very uh, yeah, base ambitions and yeah. fulfills them. He has no morals. And he's not intelligent about it mm. at either. He's just the worst. But and, you uh, believe that he exists. It doesn't. Mm. It's not like he's a cartoon. And uh, the most telling scene in the movie uh, comes pretty early, uh, I guess about halfway through, yeah. when uh, there's uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio character sort of brought under the wing of the De Niro characters. Yeah. Like, okay, let's here's what we're going on. He doesn't really make it explicit, but we figure it out pretty early on, like what's going on, all those manipulations, all these murders that are happening to siphon money into the pockets of these guys. And, uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio gets a little too big for his britches. He starts like ordering hits on his own. It's like, I'm going to hire these guys and take care of some stuff on my own. And, uh, he's actually whisked away by De Niro and taken to a Masonic temple. Mm, it's actually, actually like two thirds of the way through the movie. Oh, is but it yeah, later in the movie? Yeah. Later, yeah. And, and like yeah. has him in this like weird sort of Masonic rites, like put your hands on the table and we're going to spank you. Like literally <laughs> hit his butt with a paddle. And yeah. you realize, so all of this like criminality, it's not about like the wealth or the power for you. Mm-hmm. It's not about the power trip. It's about your clubhouse. 
yeah. this cute little white guy clubhouse where you're just going to spank each other for breaking the rules. Yeah. It's like, meanwhile, the Osage people are suffering and being literally poisoned by yeah. these guys. We, we talked uh, when we talk about Zone of Interest about the banality of evil, and mm-hmm. I think there's an element of that in Killers of the Flower Moon as well, where this is a multi-year mass murder plot mm-hmm. that is carried out mostly very casually. Mm-hmm. Murders that take place over the course of years as they slowly poison the people they have married mm. so that when they, they die, seemingly of natural causes, they can just inherit the wealth. And there, there's a streak of white supremacy, uh, have oh, children with these people, huge and, the, white and they'll, they'll be left, yeah. like, kind of thinning yeah. of blood, the there's talk this inc- of that. There's uh, this incredible sequence later on as things start to unravel where like a lawyer is just like, yeah, this guy talked to me and he was like, yeah, I married a, a woman and uh, you know, she, she's dying, but it'll all go to the kids. Um, if the kids die, I get the money, right? Mm. And the lawyer's like, are you asking what I think you're asking? <laughs> only, and the guy literally just, he just says, only if I get, I'm only asking that if I would get the money. Mm. What? Yeah, <laughs> you're just it's, saying it's, this out loud? It's, yeah. it's so casual. Mm. The evil isn't banal. It's casual. They don't care. No. They don't think that it's evil. They think they're entitled to it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. so fucking terrifying. And, and again, that's that's something that feels really timely again. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like Scorsese is really nailing it now. Like it's it's so yeah. strange that he's in his eighties and he's kind of mm. he said like I only got so many films left in me, and he's just getting more energetic and more yeah. introspective and really kind of zeroing in on all the concepts that he's spent a whole career, dozens of movies zeroing in on. Yeah. And he's always pushing himself. He's and, never resting. And yet he's also still willing at his this late date to interrogate himself because the way the film ends mm. calls into question the function of a movie like Killers of the Flower it, Moon yeah. and how it's presented to an audience and how history is reduced to film and how gross that is. Yeah, no, I was uh, not expecting the sort of meta jolt mm. at the end of this movie. It's a great, another great another fucking great, ending. Yeah, another great ending. Like, a lot of people mm. can pull out all the stops for great mm. endings this year. It's, boy, it's great. It's a long picture. It's three hours and 45 minutes. Yeah, it doesn't uh, feel it, though. It's very No, breezy. no. Yeah. I, I, I felt it with The Irishman. It's oh, like, yeah. yeah I, the I, Irishman's I, maybe a I, I wanted to, like, hit a button. It's like, Thelma... <laughs> Cut, cut this one. We, we, we don't need the fourth scene of them driving back and forth to that fucking house like, at the end of The Irishman. I, I know the point is he goes from a young man to, like, being 80, but mm. we shouldn't be 80 by the time we get to the end of the movie, too. Like, like let's, like I, I let's pick up the pace of I appreciate that's the point, but we can get, get, get to it a little bit faster with The Irishman. I like The Irishman a lot. It's but, a great movie, but, like, it's, it's but maybe kill, a little slow. Killers yeah. of a Flower Moon, I think he just is yeah. firing on all cylinders. It's really fascinating all the way through. I love how pathetic mm-hmm. the villain characters are, and it's yeah. about these villain characters. Um, it's, it's not about... Uh, and and it is about a, a sort of the deliberate destruction mm. of everything by the hands of clubhouse white guys who spank <laughs> each other. It's like that's yeah. all we got here. Yeah, that's a, that, that's all America is. That's all America is. It's yeah. just the the pathetic whims of unthinking assholes who spank each other in clubhouses, so, and so, it feels like it sometimes. So you picked this mm. like. Three hour epic mm. about like the depths of depravity in the mm. American soul. Yeah. Uh, uh, best film of the year. And, and you know what? There's a great argument for it. It didn't make my top 10, but it's a great argument for it. I, mm. I, I really have no meaningful critiques of the movie. It's a great movie. When I tried to pick my number one film, mm. 
I literally, like, I love all the movies I've talked about and many of the ones on my runners-up. Mm-hmm. Just so much. And I was trying to say, like, how... I hate that I have the single one out, but if I do, mm-hmm. what criteria do I use? Okay. And the criteria I decided to use was... I've been going through a lot this year. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into any details, but I have been uh, in some incredibly harrowing places mentally this last year. And I try to put on a strong face... But my mental health has not been great. A lot. Of the last, I don't know, six months in particular. And movies, which have been, you know, probably my greatest passion outside of my personal relationships, um, have brought me so much meaning and purpose. And uh, I, I, even great movies this year haven't really necessarily given me that. Mm. They're brilliant, but I'm watching them and I just keep thinking about how miserable I am, <laughs> how scared I am, and how so much of them. So I wanted to pick the film that brought me the most joy. Ah, all right. A film that, and earned it. It's on, it's on Escapist Pablum. Like, mm. a movie that actually made me feel what I needed to feel to get mm. through this year. Uh, that there is beauty in the world. There's sadness, too. It's not, you know, mm. flighty. But that the world is a place where wonderful things happen and can be experienced. Mm. And that film is The Taste of Things. Oh, which uh, I didn't say. I know. It's one of those movies, and I, I hate this, actually, because a lot of movies, especially international films, but a lot of movies towards the end of the year, mm. uh, because it is a glut. There's so many movies coming out, big wannabe blockbusters and Oscar hopefuls. That a lot of movies have a what they call an Oscar qualifying run, which is a very tiny run, yeah, that, just so that they technically came out in this year, so they qualify for this yeah, year's Oscars. Uh, but then later on, probably in January or February, when there's a little less competition out there, they'll have a bigger run, and hopefully they'll be able to ride the wave of critical acclaim and awards buzz to have a bigger audience. There's a practical side of it, and I get it, but there's this annoying factor where a lot of critics put these movies on their lists and no one has had an opportunity to see them yet. Mm. And to many people, it'll feel like a move, like a 2024 movie, because mm. that's when you get a chance to see it. And that sucks. Mm. I'm not going to pretend that doesn't suck, but the reality is, it's technically a 2023 film. And it, I just, I loved it so much. <laughs> um, uh, it's, uh, it's from uh, director An Hung Tran, and um, stars Juliette Binoche as a chef. She is working for uh, a culinary uh, giant, uh, maybe the most respected palate in all of France, uh, and this is uh, set like 150 years ago, and. The first chunk of the movie is them making dinner. Hmm. They start first thing at dawn. They pick the vegetables fresh. And then we watch them using, you know, much older kitchen equipment than we would have now. uh, Prepare meals that would put everyone to shame today. (laughs) It's a great food movie. You cannot not think it's delicious. Um, All the care all the love, all of the science and all of the artistry uh, that goes into it is beautifully realized. Uh, The relationship that you develop with somebody as you do a thing you love with them. Mm 
even if you don't say it, is very potent. And after this initial meal, where they make this giant multi-course meal for their guests, we realize that they are in love, and that he has been wanting to marry her for a while, and she's like, why ruin a good thing? <laughs> because right now, like, almost every night, you, like, knock on my door, and I open my door, and we have sex. And that's great. But if I don't want to open the door, I don't have to. <laughs> if we get married, I'm going to feel obligated to open that door. So let's just not ruin it. But early in the film, Juliette Binoche is feeling a little faint. Uh-oh. And because it's a movie and no one is ever just... Because mm. in real life, you know, if you just have a cough one day, yeah, sure it's, we prob- will. it's probably just a cough. We'll you run know. away someday, won't we, Johnny? Sure we will, Homer. Sure we will. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, there's no... Everything in a movie is so particular. So if you see a character cough at the beginning of the movie and it's not specifically justified mm. by they have a cold or they're in a smoky room or something, that cough means they're going to die. <laughs> That's just that's tuberculosis yeah, right that, there. It's yeah. this really awkward medical foreshadowing. We're really, really bad about it. Like any movie where a woman vomits mm. and she isn't drunk or have food poisoning, she's pregnant. Oh. That means that every single time, if they're not drunk and if it's not like a specific medical thing that makes sense, that's justified by the plot, they're always pregnant. That's just mm. what it means. So the fact that Julia Pinoche is feeling a little faint means she's going to get pretty sick. <laughs> And they're not pretending otherwise. Oh. They get there. And what the thing is, that forces them to consider that this daily life that they have had, where they cook together every single day, is precious. Mm. And it leads to this centerpiece in the middle of the movie where he decides to do something he's never done. Cook just for her. Oh. And every single thing that he does, this is the whole middle of the movie, just him making a meal for her. Every single thing he does is special, is magical. It's something you haven't seen before. It's so fucking romantic. <laughs> it's so goddamn beautiful and sweet. It's really showing your love for somebody through your art and through something you share with them. It's so goddamn good. And it's another one where the ending, and without telling you anything that happens in it, oh god, what a great ending! <laughs> Just an ending that, like, even though sad things have happened, is like, oh, we're gonna be okay, aren't we? Like, it's so great. Oh, God. It's so wonderful to have a movie, because you and I were critics and we like think about the construction of these things so much, mm. where I'm not thinking about the construction. I'm just falling into it and feeling the feels. Okay. And that's rare. <laughs> and I can't not reward that. Yeah. So that's my favorite film of the year. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's the best, too. Sadly, I feel the feels, but I feel afraid in mine, I guess. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, sadly, I can't comment on it. Didn't I see know. the movie. I uh, know. It's a bummer. I hope, I hope you see it like I mean, you it, called though. it the really best did. film of the year, so that's uh, the highest yeah. possible recommendation. Yeah. Um, all right, so uh, that's it for our top ten list. Real fast, uh, just so everyone's got them all in one place. Uh, Whitney's top ten, in the order in which they were introduced, but this isn't an mm-hmm. order. Uh, smoking causes coughing. Scrapper, Bottoms, Bo is Afraid, May, December, The Zone of Interest, Divinity, Oppenheimer, Skinnamarink, and Killers of the Flower Moon. 
my picks, and I think there were three overlaps. That's pretty good, actually. Uh, Influencer, Nimona, Bottoms, All of Us Strangers, Anatomy of a Fall, The Zone of Interest, Barbie, Godzilla Minus One, Skinamarink, and The Taste of Things. Uh, do you want to talk about a few of your runners-ups? Uh, Give them a quick list. A, a couple. Uh, I already talked about Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah. That, that was like my favorite fun effects-based movie of the sure. year. Uh, I saw a really, really harrowing horror movie called Do Not Disturb oh. about a, a couple who hates each other and turn into cannibals while they're on vacation oh, right. together. I'm reviewing that now. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Another film that's actually very explicitly about American corporate depravity, but it's told as a hero story, Air, uh, is a film that is actually just really enjoyable to watch. Uh, it has good performances, it's really good direction, uh, it's really zippy, and yet it also... Uh, is really timely in the way it vaunts corporate thinking over human decency. Mm. Uh, I like Air a lot. I, I know I, you don't like it. I, well, uh, I liked it at the time because I do agree it's very well constructed mm. and like very well put together. It's incredibly watchable. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but over time I resented that watchability because I think it's hiding something really dark and cruel in it. Yeah. So I, I, I soured on it over time, but uh, I totally appreciate why you like it, yeah. Um, I, I mentioned Occupied City. Yeah. Uh, that's one I wish I could have put on my top ten, as well as uh, Ava DuVernay's Origin. Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty uh, important movie right now. Uh, also, Past Lives, I wish I could have put on my top yeah, ten. That's, that's an excellent romance, uh, speaking of really romantic films. Uh, Wes Anderson's Raul Dahl shorts yeah, that's were on really my list fantastic. Too. Yeah, I love uh, them. They're so, <laughs> they're so inspired. Mm, you could have just told that story. No, 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 no. The production design in that movie should win a spe- and those shorts should win a special mm. Academy Award. It's the, so the, the inventive. The shorts are really, really great. Yeah. The way they're narrated, just sort of the yeah. overlapping narratives, the way they kind of make certain things abstract. It's yeah. really, really wonderful. They're, they're genius, yeah. Um, uh, Alex Winter made a documentary about YouTube. It's called The YouTube Effect oh, and how, that, yeah. how YouTube was kind of damaging human consciousness. That's a very uh, necessary watch, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It, it could be more thorough, but like it's a huge topic. It could be eight hours long and still need to be right, more thorough. Right, right. Yeah. I feel like that's a film that should have been you know, four and a half hour documentary. Yeah. Uh, you, we mentioned No One Will Save You is a really fantastic alien thriller. Yeah. Uh, an Italian film that came along called Amanda, which no one really huh. talked about, I thought was really wonderful wonderful about a, a, a spoiled rich girl with no friends uh who is sent to a friend's house to you, you have to go to a friend's house you have to play with her they haven't seen each other since they were literally two years old and yeah. she's become a complete recluse and it's uh you could compare it to wes anderson in that it's very kind of mannered and it's about these rich people who just don't have any kind of uh social acumen whatsoever mm-hmm. but uh how they kind of find their weird uh, yeah. in there but it's also very sour. I like that. Uh, there was a science fiction film that came out on Netflix called They Clone Tyrone. Yeah, that's a good uh, one. I really liked They Clone Tyrone. That's a about, smart screenplay. Um, uh, about uh, kind of this weird, fantastical, semi-blaxploitation movie world. Mm. Uh, and they find that it's being manipulated from under the ground by like mad scientists who are conducting this societal experiment. Mm. That's really cool. Uh, and... Um, Golly, it's it's sweaty and 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 gross and nudie, but salt burn was a, a oh, really? quite, quite a pleasure. I didn't notice that they made yeah. such an impact on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's a good list. Sir. Thank you. Is that the end? Well, okay. A lot of good movies came out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I have some a couple of overlaps. Uh, May December uh, made your right. top ten. Didn't make mine, but made my runners up. Uh, Creed three. 
Oh, really? You know, okay. it's it's a shame about one of the the leads in it, but the fact mm. is that's one of the best Rocky movies. It's extremely intelligent. Michael B. Jordan directs the fucking shit out of it, and I love the way that it manages to take the boxing format that every Rocky movie has been sort of dealing with for decades, mm. uh, and find a new avenue by having it be about the hero finally admitting to childhood trauma. Yeah, like yeah. like he went through harrowing things, and that actually needs to be engaged with. It's a it's one of the more deeply and intelligently psychological films in w- arguably the greatest American film franchise. And, and another good ending, like a good climax. A great the, ending. The, the way they shoot the final oh, yeah. boxing match. Oh yeah, really the cool. ending's fantastic. Like, I love that movie. No, it's I, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. Um, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. You mentioned it earlier. Didn't get to see it. Uh, yeah. It's a story about a group of people who decide to blow up a pipeline in order to commit an act of eco terrorism because none of the quote unquote proper channels are getting anything done when it comes to the existential threat uh, that corporations are posing to the environment. And here's the thing about the movie. It never says that those eco-terrorists are wrong. Mm. In fact, it says they're right. Mm. And that is some fucking daring Battle of Algiers type shit. <laughs> and it's re- it's masterfully edited. It's really, really great. I had a hard time taking off my top ten. It's really, really good. Um, Sheen Ultraman uh, is a great sci-fi sort of... It, it's weird because it has like blockbuster elements, but... It's constructed so episodically and so strangely that what it ultimately did wasn't so much thrill me as make me feel really tiny in the universe. <laughs> and I think that's a great approach mm. to that kind of like story by aliens coming to Earth. Um, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is, is a delight. Uh, it's I'll, great. I know you thought I'll, it was incomplete. I'll, I'll get back to you when I see yeah. the rest of the movie. I that's appreciate that, I and I reserve now, the yeah. right to say if the next one sucks mm. and retroactively hurts this, the, fine. The, but the, for the right one, now, I think it's excellent. Yeah, the, the one I compared it to was uh, The Matrix Reloaded. Sure. Bigger, impressive visually when you watch just that one. Yeah, this is great. The third one comes out, and it both seem underwhelming all of a sudden, yeah. to, especially when compared to the first. I get it. It's a risk. Yeah. But right now, it's what we got. I'm going to engage with yeah. it as, as is. Um, Wes Anderson's Roald Dahl shorts, they're just fucking yeah. incredible. And Asteroid City's really good, too. But I, the shorts are even The shorts better. are better, yeah. yeah. Uh, are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret is Which delightful. I also didn't see. I've heard a lot of great things about this. Absolutely thing. delightful. Just really impeccably, naturally dramatic. And boy, is Rachel McAdams great in it. No One Will Save You. Uh Polite Society it came out earlier in the year and kind of got forgotten which is a damn shame because that movie is delightful uh, it is about a, a British Pakistani family uh, sort of and they, they, the youngest daughter wants to be a stunt woman hmm. uh, and her sister wants to be an artist but it's not going well and she decides to give up on her dreams and just get married and her younger sister can't deal with that and assumes that there's something nefarious at foot and puts all of her like movie skills to the test to try to save her <laughs> sister and you're just like is anything actually happening or like and it goes to such wonderful places it's really great very spirited uh and then lastly saw x really saw x works god damn it <laughs> saw x takes this incredibly bloated bizarre overly complicated franchise which i love mm. i love how weird and bizarre and overly complicated it's been Saw X is the first film in the series, the very first, and it's the tenth, to simplify it. Is, is it to, called Saw X or is it called Saw Ten? It doesn't matter. All right. It, no one says it in the film, so it's irrelevant. Right. Like, Saw Ten, whatever. Mm. Uh, reduces it to finally a jigsaw story. <laughs> From his perspective, the entire time gets right into the melodrama of that character's plight and what turned him into a serial killer. Uh, and it's 
gross and it's painful. As, as and these it's, movies tend to be. Yeah. And it it's 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 almost cathartic, <laughs> but it's not. It's a great place for a horror movie to land. I, I really do. There, there's an argument to be made. I think the more I think about it, that it's the best one. Really? Yeah, I think it's it's between like that and like two and six. Like mm-hmm. those those are all both really really good. But I think Saw X is the one that is probably the the cleanest and stands on its own. Okay, and it's it's fucking great. And Tobin Bell, mwah, great performance, buddy. Anyway, that is it for critically acclaimed. Thank you everybody for listening. Thank you for joining us. If you want to talk about anything we said in this podcast, you want to share your picks for best movies of the year, we'd love to hear it. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is your P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep, we might read your correspondence on the air on our podcast, We've Got Mail. Uh, You can also listen to this episode ad-free and all future episodes ad-free at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network we have a lot of exclusive shows over there and thank you to all of our patrons because we really couldn't do this without you you're amazing thank yeah. you thank you for your support we're on social media at critic acclaim i'm at William bibiani i'm at Whitney uh it's not too late have a happy new year <laughs> hope you're having a good one so far uh and um thanks for listening don't forget everyone's a critic i wanna go to the midnight show i'm sorry what Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.